I remember the age I learned I was scary. Eight. I reached out to hug a teacher and she flinched. Then she remembered who she was and broke herself into a hug that was so brittle, I thought it would cut my skin. This is Kill Moon Paradise, written by James Imes, directed by Harold E. Jones. The play is about four African-American young men whose lives are violently cut short at the hands of law enforcement and as a result of the institutionalized fear and loathing of black men in America. Kill Moon Paradise is a beautiful and smartly written play about the experiences of black men in America. Experiences that historically haven't been well represented on stage. We watch the young men try to understand where they are, what has brought them to this place, how they can help one another, and just why they are so fearsome in the minds and hearts of America. One of the sources of inspiration for the play was the murder of Tamir Rice, who was a 12-year-old young man killed in Cleveland. The killing of unarmed African Americans, both male and female, in this country continues at an alarming rate. Bringing awareness to this ongoing tragedy is paramount in moving us forward towards ending the crisis. We see the young men present all of the facets of their humanity. They play, they fight, they forgive, they joke, they bond, and ultimately, they transcend. Brother? What? I'm your brother. Biologically? Spiritually. Hmm. Psychically. That makes sense to me. I thought so too. I think everyone should come see this play because they're going to laugh and you may cry a little, but I think that's okay. I think it's also an opportunity to honor and celebrate um, young black men and uh, those who are living and those who were taken from us too soon. In the most tragic moments in life, there's always humor. It's an irony, but there's always humor. And humor has been one of the things that African Americans have relied on to, to overcome. So it's, it's funny, it's moving, it's heartbreaking, but it's life. Good morning, and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was a teaser, really wonderful trailer, um, uh, sort of highlighting shotgun players in association with, association with Lorraine Hansberry Theater's production of James um, Imes' Kill, Move, Paradise, directed by Daryl V. Jones and... Um, yeah, it's currently on stage through um, August 4th, and we are so excited to have in the studio. Um, we have the um, the set designer, Celeste. How do you pronounce your last name, Celeste? Martori. Martori, right. And we have um, we have Daryl V. Jones, the director. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning. Good to be with you again. And I think. Yeah, you know, you're a regular. And I think we have um, the 
the uh, playwright, James Imes, in the studio. Is that you, James? I don't recognize the prefix. I'm not sure. No? Is that you, Stephanie? Hmm. I think we just have me and Celeste. Oh, no, actually, I have three people. I just don't know who the third person is. It's like, oh, okay. Um, no, Someone's um, ghosting. So anyway, someone's ghosting. Okay, no problem. Maybe they'll unmute their phone and tell me who they are. Because um, <laughs> the playwright is going to be joining us. But I just want to congratulate you on a wonderful, a wonderful production. It is just, ah, phenomenal and I and I've had an opportunity to see it twice and oh, I don't know, I might be able to get myself to come back for a third time. So if you maybe could tell us um about uh, this this wonderful collaboration, uh, Daryl. here's our guest again. Let's see. Oh, no, they're gone again. Um yeah, tell us about the collaboration, Daryl, between the two two theater companies to to produce this work. And it's not the first time that a work has been um staged at Shotgun um by uh James Imes. They they actually uh, did his white, I believe, last season. That's correct. Um so yeah, they did white last season and white was directed by M. Graham Smith. Um, and that was a successful production. Um, I had actually identified Kill Move Paradise um, as something that um, I presented to Shotgun um, uh, before White, um, but uh, um, as it worked out, um, it wasn't the right time for it, and so... Um, Patrick uh, eventually uh, read the script and he was just blown away by it. I I think Patrick Dooley, the artistic director of Shotgun Players, is one of those people who um, read the script and it seared his soul and it immediately sort of made him change his behavior, change the way that he interacts, even in walking down the street and and passing an African-American young man. But Patrick loved the script um and um when i became when i came on board with uh as acting artistic director for the Lorraine Hansberry Theater Company um i thought this is a wonderful time for these two theater companies that have made um uh plays that deal with um our social and political situations current and social current social and political situations they are emphasized diversity and racial and social justice. And I thought this was a wonderful time for these two companies to come together on a project. And so we did. And thus you have mm-hmm. Kill Move Paradise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think the Bay Area has ever experienced a play quite like this one. It's just so, unfortunately, timely. Oh, my gosh. Well, the unfortunate thing is this is not the first play that I have um, directed, nor I, I, it probably won't be the last. I hope to God it's the last, but it's not the first play that I've dealt with that has um, directed that I've dealt. It's not the first play I've directed that's dealt with the unfortunate and the tragic slaying of African-Americans at the hands of law enforcement or rogue white vigilante groups. Um, 
And uh, so, yes, it's it, it's timely now. It was timely in the 1920s and the 30s, and it's time for us to really come to uh, it's, it's the play is a call to arms. I hate saying arms because that's like the wrong word for this, but it's a call to action. Um, and it invites us to stop observing this tragedy and really try to participate actively in resolving it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And um, so our third guest has come back into the studio. Is is that you, James? This is me. So sorry about that. Oh, super. Awesome. Because I was looking at the prefix like Philadelphia. Okay, that could be him. <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> oh, awesome, awesome. Well, I know, I know you've heard the comments because I, I saw you going in and out, and we're so happy to have you join us to talk about this work. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I mean, like, controversy must be your your um I guess uh philosophy in, in playwriting because you know, white, like oh my goodness, and now Kill Moo Paradise and what a title. Kill Moo Paradise. The three words all together, like, hmm <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I wanted the the title of the play to to sound like a video game. Um mm. and have that sort of quality of you know, like Grand Theft Auto. You know, I like playing video games, which is probably a problem, but um, it's a way to relieve stress. And mm-hmm. there's something about the the way that those games are titled that sort of, you know, make them seem like they're this, like, fun thing, but then, you know, you're confronted with this violence inside of the game. Um, and so I wanted the play to sort of do that, um, to sort of bring people in, like, oh, that's flashy. And then when you get in it, you have to confront the reality of what's inside of the thing that you're playing or the thing you're consuming. Mhm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we've um, been been talking um, about uh, just sort of the impact of the work. Um, uh, I know probably. Um, uh, well, I know as a, as a person, you know, in the audience, uh, I love theater because I love being present you know, in, in in the theater because the impact is like, well, the experience is visceral and, and the impact is immediate because these are people, you know, um, on, on the stage. They're not, there's no distance between me and them, um, even if I'm not super close to, to the stage and I happen to have gotten really good seats. I was just two seats from the front of the of the theater. And in this particular play, it's really cool because the audience is a part is is a character, you know. We're America, and we watch. <laughs> so, yeah. so that was really awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was really important to me to, and, th- and I think this is something that I started to play with in white, but it's it's sort of grown to maturity in this production or in this this play is. Um, having the audience be implicated in what's happening on stage so that they can't um, leave feeling like the work that they need to do for social justice, for equity, for equality is is done by going and viewing the play. Like I think sometimes people feel like, oh, I went to go see this play that was topical and I've done some work <laughs> when you really haven't done any work. So I want to put the audience in a position of, 
feeling like, well, this was a step towards something that is slightly incomplete and I need to find a way to complete it in my life. Um, and so that's my hope is that it causes people to continue to grapple with it even after they leave the theater. Mm-hmm. James yeah. and I have never yeah. met. Good morning, James. Good morning, Daryl. Uh, I, I, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's an undeniable pleasure and uh, or privilege. Not, it's a privilege to direct this play, and uh, so I just wanted you to know that. And um, because it, it, you know what he's saying about the audience being engaged and the way that he's written it, it sort of propels them to not be able to just leave the theater and say, okay, well, um, well, I did my part. I went and saw it. And in af- after each show at Shotgun, after every performance, we have a, an audience conversation. Um, and the woman that's leading these conversations, Kathleen Ridley, who's a well-known uh, Bay Area actor, um, she does a wonderful job of, of pointing out to them that it doesn't stop here. It does not stop here. She, she asks them every night, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do differently? How are you going to make a change? And she points out that even if, if it's something as small as when you see an African-American young man in your neighborhood and you don't know who he is, maybe the first thing you shouldn't do is call the police. But maybe the first thing you should do is go out and introduce yourself um, and say, you know, hi, welcome to the community or whatever. But if small little steps like that um, make a difference. And then we also talk about larger steps, like educating people about this, because a lot of African-American history, not, no, I take that back, a lot of American history was altered and swept under the carpet um, in order to clean things up a bit. But I, it's, we need to know the truth. We need to know the truth so that wound can heal. We need to uncover it and let it heal. And it heals through exposing it and then taking action. Mm. So true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I was wanted to um, uh, to talk a little bit about about all of your directions. I hear Celeste mentioned at opening night that there are a lot of directions around the set and what it looks like, and I presume that in each of the different iterations or different productions, that interpretation varies. And uh, and I'm sure you've seen photographs and things like that of this particular set, which is like, wow, it is amazing. Uh, Celeste really did, it's really monumental. And Celeste, I just loved just your talking to me um, opening night about about the give and take between you and, and Daryl around the vision for the setting or the set so that this story can play out. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And then, James, sure. you could join them and talk about sort of what, why all those directions and what was in your mind. And I know as as an actor, as well as a direct, as a playwright, and then, Daryl, you're also, you know, a director and an actor. <laughs> and, and I don't know, Celeste, if you're also, um, if you are also on stage as well, you know, as designing, you know, 
uh, pieces for stage. But it's interesting, you know, the fluidity between the different roles in theater that at least two of you all have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I've been on stage in the past, um, but <laughs> I'm a full-time <laughs> designer now. Um, but what what I do remember from being an actor is um, how I felt on stage um, in a set and how I interacted with a set. And so um, when I design for a piece, I'm always I've always have heightened awareness of um, what I'm pushing and what I'm challenging with um, unconventional unconventional ways to design a set. So I think a lot of the commentary or um, and a lot of the issues with what Daryl and I were running into in some earlier designs um, was that there weren't there wasn't a lot of space. There wasn't a lot of flat space. Um, and so I think we challenged each other early on um, to be like, well, why do we need flat space? Is it more interesting to have these guys stand um, askew or a little bit um, not sure-footed the entire time? Um, so, yeah, I think pushing those boundaries of like, well, uh, we're, <laughs> we're, uh, we're going to push this, this in a certain way that might be a little bit uncomfortable for people or definitely traditional theater um, is what we were interested in. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I will say, though, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, a little bit unsure about um, how they're mm-hmm. standing or like a little bit unfamiliar with, with this new place that they ended up in. Um, I will say that James actually, um, hi, James, this is the first time I'm speaking to you as well. <laughs> um, yes, James that is also, gorgeous. I just want to say that. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> um, James pretty much, I love, I love to say this, but James pretty much designed the set. Um <laughs> His stage directions um, for the set were uh, amazing. Um, they're so specific yet open-ended that it could be interpreted in many different ways. So for Daryl and I, um, we latched on to a few motifs throughout the script, um, a couple being um, the history repeating itself. So we've seen over hundreds of years, possibly thousands of year, years, um, the cyclical nature of um, black death as either like tribute, sacrifice, or martyr. Um, so this issue has lived on throughout slave years to current day 2019. Um, and we wanted to represent that historically. And so one image that we um, were pursuing was the slave ship. Um, and so through all of these different motifs, we wanted to abstract it. And so what was saved from that motif was the parabolic shape. So I like to call it um, a cross section of a slave ship. Um, and so the, the stage ended up in this sort of U shape um, to be really derivative of what, um, what, a, what a slave ship would look like if you cut it in half and broke it open. Um, and the two other themes which we were exploring was the idea that black lives, black bodies, um, and are treated sort of like uh, disposable. And so we were really interested in the idea of the sewer um, as black lives getting like flushed down the toilet and into this underworld. Um, and so that's how the entrances ended up the way they did. So there are these tubed, piped, capped openings through which the actors hurl themselves into. There's also a manhole. Um, through which light comes up through the floor. We were interested in sort of inverting um, orientation. It's like, well, where's up, where's down? I don't know. (laughs) If you were standing underground and looking through a manhole, you would see light. Um, And so we were interested in creating all of these, like, topsy-turvy orientations so that when actors were exploring the space and trying to get out, they couldn't understand which way was up from down or even which way to get out. 
Um, and then the last thing we were exploring was the idea of embedding religion into our set. Um, and so that's where the main hole um, upstage, the big one, we call it the Oculus, came about. Um, because there's a lot of, the, I mean, religion is peppered throughout the entire script. Um, and so I took a lot of inspiration from ancient Roman and Greek architecture. Um, the, Pantheon, the Pantheon, the Parthenon, they all have these um, huge oculi at the top of their structure. And that's made to represent um, a direct line from earth to heaven. Um, and so we put that at the top and we had the youngest actor enter from there and eventually all of the actors escaped from there as their final transformation to the heavens. So we paid homage to thousands of years of architecture, um, architectural representation to sort of allow user and um, users, <laughs> allow audience members um, something to catch on to from a religious point of view. So you... You gave away a lot of surprises there, but it was good. It was good. We, 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 uh, uh, the, yeah, the set's amazing. And, uh, um, I think Celeste has just, uh, from our early conversation, she just, uh, she dug deep and really got this. And it's so powerful. I'm going to, um, out you, Celeste, that there have been a couple of moments when she actually said, what have I done? I've created this set that, en that entraps these young men. I have no escape. And uh, uh, it's so visceral that um, it, was, it, it hits us all, every, every single performance, um, because the set is that. It, it, it's, it's so powerful in just taking it in, just looking at it. Yeah, after mm -hmm. the first um, reading and after the first couple of run-throughs, I told Daryl, I was like, I can't, I can't watch this play. I can't come see this play. Because um, the brilliance of James' writing is that the audience feels um, complicit through the whole play. They feel complicit in, mm -hmm. uh, and, and helpless in, in the fact that these black men are stuck in this space. They just don't know what to do. And so for me, um, as, as being the set designer, I felt a heightened level of, not even complicit, I was an active participant in their entrapment because my only involvement in this play was creating a bowl that they could not get out of. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was a really weird experience for me. I was like, oh dear, <laughs> um, what did I do? Yeah, so James, um, maybe uh, if you could tell us about uh, you know, the um, <clears throat> the set that holds these 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 characters, as well as maybe you just talk a little bit about about the characters um, and uh, you know their ages and their experiences, and I I, I really like the um, <clears throat> uh, the character that um, uh, Eddie um, is it Eddie yeah Eddie uh, yes, Ewell, Eddie um, Ewell. Isa, Ewell. yeah he yeah he um, uh, he portrays because. He says that he's been there before, and I'm like, and I kept on thinking I misheard him, and so then when I saw it again, I'm like, no, he said it, and I, and so I asked him, um, how is that possible? You only died once, right? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the space, and then I'll talk a little bit about the characters. Um, I, I, mm -hmm. when I was, I wrote this play really, really quickly. I think I wrote the first draft of it in a week, when I, it, and mm. I've never written anything that quick. Um, and it, I wrote it immediately sort of on the heels of 
um, hearing about Tamir Rice and feeling like feeling angry, but also feeling like really disempowered, like feeling like um, walking down the street, going to the grocery store, sitting in a movie theater, like everything felt um, off balance. And so I was like, well, what does that feel like? What, how do you, can you, can you make that emotional feeling physical? Okay. What does that look like? And I kept coming back to this idea of a wave that's sort of frozen. Which, in a weird way, is kind of what America feels like. It feels like this place where you, everything architecturally tells you that you should be able to rise in it, <laughs> and yet <laughs> it, it is so steep, it is so severe that you keep falling back down and into the the bottom of it, um, unless you know the trick or you know the key or you have access. Um, and so that's where the the shape. Um, came from and in all productions there is some variation of like a rise which I, I, I think you know if you have that that's that's sort of the heart of the play um, and it's different in every space what I love about this set is um, is the fact that there are these like places from on high that people can come in from and then there are places down low so there's like a lot of variation so that is like the less that there's not a sense of like this is the way um, you have to sort of like exist in the space to try to figure out what is right, what is correct, which is a lot of what it feels like to be um, a person of color um, in this country right now. Um, in terms of uh, Issa, Issa is the, what Jesus is called in the Quran. Um, and so he's a little bit of a Masonic figure, this sense of like coming back over and over again, but that every time he comes back, the space is sort of new and foreign. And then what does that happen when this, you know, that also calls back to like Greek mythology. You think about like um, Atlas rolling the stone up the hill and then it rolls back down. Uh, you know, there's something in that repetitiveness of constantly experiencing something that I felt like was universal to um, black people in America uh, Latinx folks in America, the sense of like you feel like you make some progress, but you find yourself right back at the beginning again. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and so why why the um, the various ages and um, and why yeah just um, you've got mm. you know four four um, four four men or three men and one boy. Mm. And it's like, why do you have to put the boy in there? Like, really? I mean, it's just like, I mean, it's already bad. And can it get worse? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, wanted, I mean, you know, this um, violence against black bodies happens no matter your age, mm-hmm. um, no matter your gender. Um, it, 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 it affects all of us. Um, like the the one regret of the play is that there's not a woman in the play. I, I really regret that. Um, and the play sort of moved well past my ability to to change that. Um, and in my other work, I, I try to make sure that I don't make that mistake again. But um, yeah, I wanted them to not all be coming from the same point of view. Um, we have a very young child who seems to be coming from a, a, um, a, a very sort of pleasant, you, you know, living inside of youth. 
which a lot of young black men don't get to experience. Um, and then you have uh, Issa, who's like older and has like seen a lot and had a lot of experience and, and his repetition in the space extends that experience even into uh, the afterlife. And then you have two sort of uh, sides of, you know, a coin with um, Griff and Daz. Um, and I feel like most playwrights, their voice is in one of the characters and Griff is the closest to the way I think and the way I move through the world and how I react to things. Um, mm. So the, he's there, but then there's also Daz, whose life experience is a little different from mine, but I can find the empathy in that. And, and I think that that is a life that is valuable and worthy of celebration and documentation and um, examination. Yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm not sure um with regards to um the directions but you know there there's um uh there there there's theater with I mean there's a story there are stories within the story and and the uh, the actors put on a play for us. Um mm. and uh you know if they could it would be in blackface. Um but we get it, and um, and you know they sing and they mime and, um, but I think yeah, and then and then there are some really powerful moments and and they're sort of really well choreographed by uh, Laura Elaine Ellis, um, particularly when uh, the names are I called. Have to step in. I I have to correct you. The choreography is oh. is co choreography. It's it's me oh. and Laura, and and I only say oh, that. Sorry. I, it's all right because I'm only saying that because uh, Laura and I have worked together many, many times, and uh, so mm-hmm. and and we are very we are, we love sharing that responsibility and title. So I just wanted to point that mm-hmm. out. No, this is even better because she's not on the air and you are. <laughs> and <laughs> and in the in the uh, in the scene, you know where. Uh, and I wish I wish Stephanie had been able to join us because it's so, guys, the lighting is so beautiful in the work. Oh my goodness, it's like another character, and the water coming pouring, you know, sort of representing you know the lives, and 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 it's sort of re- it's sort of a parallel to the paper coming out of the machine that's with all the names on it, and and I don't know if this happens, um, James, in other productions that you've. Um, uh, you've learned about or you've experienced, um, but in this particular production, um, Eddie, uh, you all told me who plays Issa again. He said that uh, at one of the um, talkbacks, there was a, a mother and a family there who had lost a loved one to violence, and they added this person's name to the list. So now they call that name too when they read the names. Yeah, every production of this play uh, that I've been um, conscious of, because I think that there's some that I don't know are even happening, um, which is really exciting. Um, I, I At some point, I get an email to say that, all right, if we had this name. Um, mm. And, of course, it's, like, horrific and awful, but I always say, yes, honor the people um, in in the community that you live in. You know, I think that's even in the scripted, you know, um, if there are people that you want to honor, you should add their names to the list. And that way the play is sort of a way to extend the community out into the community. Um, that's my hope. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Yeah. So, so Daryl, talk about the choreography and 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 that beautiful um, moment um, that I'm speaking of. I mean, it's horrific and it's also beautiful, just the way it unfolds. It's really lovely. So, I think you're referring to the naming of the names or the reading of the names mm-hmm. moment when um, mm-hmm. there's a point in the play where um, Issa. Um, reads off the names, uh, a very long list of names of African-American men and women. And there are also some trans people on the list now as well. I don't know if there were originally, but um, he reads Mm -hmm. off this list of names of people whose lives were taken by law enforcement of some kind in this country. Um, um, And, uh, you know, I believe James says in the script, and I, I'm, I'm trying to remember this clearly now, but I, I, it's something about it, it, it shouldn't feel like, um, James, can you help me? Cause I do, it, it, it shouldn't yeah. feel too much like a memori- memorial or, or a memorial, right. I believe. And right. uh, am I correct, James? Is that what it says? That I is absolutely remember. correct. Yeah, okay. that's absolutely so, correct. So how that hit me was and and we did a reading of this last summer and um i during the reading of the names i just had the guys sort of take in this this the tragedy and they were just moving through the space and kind of finding rhythms and stuff and beating on their chest um and so that that led me to sort of take um Oh, and and Laura, when when I first met with Laura, we both sat down and we said, you know, this this should be like a cleansing, a ritualistic mm-hmm. sort of, um, a, a, a base sort of an African ritual of um, of a cleansing of the spirit or clean or or, or or cleansing of for the dead, um, an honoring of the dead. So we based the choreography that the two other characters are doing as this river, this river of water that starts as this small little stream, but by the end of the name is is expanded to basically almost cover the entire stage. We wanted it to be rooted in African movement, African tradition and African ritual. Um, And at the same time though, we wanted to, we didn't want it to become so emotionally intense that we lost focus of the names themselves because they, they, that's the, you know, the, that's the part, the most important part of what's going on, but we wanted to support it with African ritual and um, uh, give the actors a space and movement that. Um, movement that clearly reflected the anguish um, of hearing these names without pulling away from it too much. And at the, so I, I actually, I, I also did the musical direction. And so we started with, you know, we, we had, we have this sort of song or this sung, um, sung almost like, um, work chant um, or field chant in the beginning of the reading of the names. And by the end, 
we return to sort of an African beating, um, almost as if the beating of the heart, it's to remind us of the beating of these hearts. And at the end, these hearts start to slow down. So that rhythm continues to slow down as Issa continues to read names. And then he just ends with the and, 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 as all the hearts have stopped beating. And so that's a little bit of the inspiration and how that, that moment came together for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really beautiful. Definitely, you know, we feel the libation, you know, for these these um, ancestors, you know, those that are sort of in this portal and then those that have made their ascension. And, and just, I don't know, I just sort of think about the um, the rupture of a life, you know, like you're, you know, you're in a park playing um, uh you know, uh, an imaginary game. You know, chasing aliens, <laughs> and the next thing you know, it you're 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 sitting in this place with no furniture, uh, wondering where you are and who these who these people are. And your mom told you don't speak to strangers, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I I I think it's important to say too, though, that um, as tragic as the situation is James has done such a wonderful job in writing these characters in the fullness of their lives. And, and that's the sad part because what we see is we see these guys up there that are just so full of life and potential and, and, you know, they could, they could be, they're visionaries. Um, And yet, you know, we know that they're dead, but what we see in the play is we see them in the prime of their lives, and we see all this wonderful come, you know, they fight, they, they, they love each other, they bond together. He's written such wonderful humanity for each one of these characters, and there's great humor and love and joy in the play as well. It, it's, it takes you through the entire range of human emotion. But, um, I, but I think that's really, really important because it shows that we are not or that African-Americans are not just the stereotypes that people are used to seeing, but we are so much more. And um, the play is so visceral that one almost loses the sense of that they're watching the actors that uh, that it seems like you're watching you know real people express um go through this on stage and i i think that's also in part because every single one of those actors at some point in time has had an experience of being racially profiled by the police and we talked about that very early on um Every single one of them, and including myself, we've all had that experience of being, at one point in time, af- afraid that we were in, caught by law enforcement completely innocently. We, we were innocent, but we were pulled over or thrown to the ground because one of them was actually thrown to the ground um, by police and and. Um, at, for being in the wrong place at the wrong time and the wrong color. And, um, but the, as tragic as that is, 
the play manages to tell this story, but it tells it with a great a, a great amount of of joy, not joy, a great amount of love, and 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 at the end there is a well, I won't say too much about the end. I won't say too much about the end, but. Um, <laughs> I will say that it's an ironic ending, particularly in this production. It's an ironic ending. Mm. <laughs> uh, um, Celeste, um, I was wondering if you want to uh, maybe comment, uh, maybe something, uh, if, you know, whatever you like. I was thinking about, uh, you know, these these men and a young man who who um portray these various characters. I was thinking about Trayvon Bell as Daz, uh Dwayne Clay as Tiny, uh Eddie Wallace we've already mentioned as Issa, and uh Leonard Jackson as Griff. Um yeah, and then and then there's the audience. We're in it too. That's right. Um yeah, I think you said Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's all you, Daryl. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to say I think she said, addressed the question to you, so you're on. Um, okay, yeah, uh, it's really it's a really interesting um, interaction that happens, um, especially I don't know if this is a set question or not, but it was interesting thinking about the threshold. So what uh, what divides the audience? from um, these men? Like, should it be anything? Should it, should it just be blank? Um, but that line of confrontation, I think, was a really important um, thing for us to experience or think about as designers. Um, and especially Stephanie Johnson, uh, um, she did an amazing job with lighting the audience, too. I don't know if everybody knew this, but the audience gets a little special light um, throughout the whole show, which no, uh, we do. Really oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, sort of self-examination <laughs> um, that I think is is rather subtle. Um, and yeah, it's just it's really uh, just a whole range of emotions. Um, my brother I and mean, a lot of black men in my life have had the same experience where they've been racially profiled. Um, and so, I mean, every time I see the play, I just bawl, cry, and <laughs> it's. it's um, it's something that's it's very it takes you through the whole gamut of of um of understanding how we experience um or our unconscious bias towards these black men and I think the four black men that are on stage um do a really really great job yeah. in representing um a broad array of of how black men um represent themselves are presented and the differences in um in the cultures and week that we grow up in um, there's many many kinds of blackness. And I think that James did James and Daryl and all of the actors did a great job um, portraying all of those differences. I have to say that Celeste is also. She just mentioned that she leaves bawling and crying, but she's also the most vocal uh, laugher in the audience as well. <laughs> she gets all of the humor, and uh, she's a great audience member. I love having her there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, during the uh, the previews um, uh, last, was I guess it was the week before last, that Sunday um, at the um, Freedom of Movement Center, um, Uncle Bobby, um, Oscar Grant's father, um, 
grand, excuse me, uncle, um, was hosting a um, uh, every year um, at the time when um, I guess Meserly was sentenced. There, they have a program, and so there was a program that that Sunday, and I I saw the I saw the play that Friday, and uh, and so at the program there were, um, you know. Um, Wanda Johnson, Oscar Grant's mother, and other women, other mothers who had lost sons and, and I guess maybe daughters to um, uh, to state violence, and and I'm like, oh no, I can't go to that. I'm thinking, oh goodness gracious, after seeing this play, mm-mm. and and so when I saw the play again uh, this past Friday, I'm like, who who can I invite? I just think about all the all the people I know. Who have lost loved ones to state violence and to uh, intercommunal violence, and I'm thinking, and and so <laughs> Kathleen really, who who hosts, who facilitates the discussions, she said, "Oh, invite invite some of the white people, you know." <laughs> so anyway, I was just wondering if if anyone, um, you know, um, presently uh, in the studio, if if you have similar kinds of of. Uh, Difficulty in wondering, okay, who, you know, is is in an emotional space to be able to entertain this topic. You know, it's like. So anyway, um, yeah. Well, as as I will just say briefly that I think it's a play about America. It's not mm-hmm. a black play. It's not a white play. These are, they're not black. We tend to make these black or white issues, but it's an American issue. Um, and so, um, you know, everyone, everyone needs to see this play. It is rare that I, that I feel that I, there's a play that is, is so um, right on point right on target that entertains, enlightens, and educates in the way that this play does. And it's such an important message. And, um, and it's done, and I must say so myself, in a beautiful production. And so that's, that's the benefit of art. Art kind of sears your soul surreptitiously. And so I think that this is important. It's important for the country. And I believe that it, this play is for everyone. So much so that I, I'm, I was thinking yesterday, wow, we put this up in the summer when all the schools are closed. Um, mm. so I, I want to start lobbying shotgun to bring it back again when schools are open so that we can get the student audience. Because it's mm. about educating the youth. Mhm. Yeah. 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 I really like it that um, Tiny is such a brilliant young person. He has like a really high IQ, and and he, you know, has facility with the language. It's just those moments are really, really special and and fun uh, when you you know you speak about the humor of the moment, uh, despite the tragedy that brought these men together. Exactly. Mm-hmm. James, do you have thoughts about uh, about this? Yeah, I think everybody can walk away from the play. Um, hopefully, 
uh, I caught a bit of the conversation earlier. We were talking about arming the audience uh, or arming people versus uh, empowering them. I think it's both. There's a there's a director in New York, Nigel Smith, who talks about um, you know in theater when we make political theater, it feels like we're preaching to the audience because people who come to the theater, by and large, um, left leaning, we think, we assume, um, we we assume that they share our politics, um, and and so there's a passivity in the way that people engage with art that is inherently political and emotional. Um, and so my hope is that the play is doing this thing that Nigel talks about is like arming the choir instead of preaching to the choir. And it's the thing where mm. people come to the play and they feel like they have something that they can, they can take into the world with them when they leave. Like that's a, that's more of a useful thing. I mean, I think that's why, the play, and I don't want to spoil the ending for anybody who hasn't seen it yet, the play ends in a way that feels like catharsis. But there's something about the way that it ends, and this has been true in every iteration of it that I've seen, and I've only seen two full productions of it. It's happened in a lot of places, which is exciting, but also makes me really sad because people still, and I wish that this play would become obsolete. Um when this play becomes obsolete, then we have moved ahead in a really spectacular way because we won't be dealing with having the conversation of mourning people who are gone way too soon for nothing. Um, but the thing that is consistent in every production is that people grapple with how do we end this play because it, it ends with a song. And that feels musical theatery. That feels, it feels like the thing that it's not. But there's something about those bodies in that context singing the, the words that they're singing that rattles people. And I'm not sure what the chemistry is there. Um, the music is different every single time. The staging is different every single time. The lights are different every single time. And every single time it does something to the people in the audience. And I think a part of it is there's been no fourth wall the entire time people are in the same space with these people and then these people leave them. And so everyone has this very real sense that usually at the end of a play when everybody bows, we feel good. But there's something about these people at the end of the play going their way and you going your way that feels uh, real. Um, and I'm, I'm really proud of that. I don't, I don't, I'm not a playwright that knows necessarily when I'm doing a thing that is a thing, if that makes any sense. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I sometimes I'll see a play like, you know, White is another really great example of getting into seeing a production event and going, oh, I had no idea it was doing this thing. That's really exciting <laughs> that it does this a thing that I didn't know that it does. And Kill Move has multiple mm -hmm. moments of that. And, um, because the action of the play is really just in the, the lap of the audience, there's no way for you to escape it. I think that is an experience and that shared experience with the people that you're sitting beside is so really important and goes, goes straight to the heart of why I think theater in general is important is that you have to confront the, the vertical the, the the horizontal conversation between you and the people you're sitting beside that you don't even know you're having. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Daryl, I don't remember the song the men were singing when at the end. <laughs> well, that 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 that's that's uh, that's sad. But uh, they they did what they sing is they sing. Um, in my father's house, there are many, many men. Oh, yes. Um, if it yes. were not so, yes. I would have told you. In that same sequence, mm-hmm. they sing, Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle mm-hmm. of the air. But it's part of that mm-hmm. whole last sort of montage that happens. When right. I, oh, we mm-hmm. can't, I don't, I, this is such a spoiler alert. We can't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I won't, I'm not going to say too much more, but yes, they they did sing at the end. Um, but it's part of a whole. Oh no, yeah, I remember now. Happened. Yeah, right. yeah, it was really beautiful. Yeah, I remember now. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was wondering, could you maybe send me, um, Daryl, the um, um, the songs that um, are are in in the piece, um, since they, you know, they're specific to this particular production. I think. Um, if I if I um, understood James correctly, they are specific to this production. I actually wrote some of, most of the music, but Ezekiel saw the wheel is nice. actually um, a traditional um, melody. But mm-hmm. um, um, can I send them to you? Sure, we'll figure out a way to do that. Okay, yeah, because I was just thinking when I heard Ezekiel. I uh, saw the wheel because my my great grandfather's name is Ezekiel, and I were and I and I grew up in the Nation of Islam, and we sort of have these um, these stories about the mothership and and the wheel, uh, Ezekiel's right. wheel, and then I think about the people who could fly, you know, like away from here, you know, like mm-hmm. we we didn't have mm-hmm. to be bound by the miseries of bondage that we could you know we could transcend, we could elevate, and and so I always think about that when um. Um, when I think about that song, and yeah, I do remember it now. But um, yeah, <laughs> well, that for, you know, that's funny. That, that, the the myth of the people that could fly, you know, the slaves that 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 mm-hmm. on the during the Middle Passage, some of them, you know, had wings and flew away, and then even after they got there, the idea that those slaves that managed to escape to freedom, there was the myth that they had wings. That was that was an image that came to me a lot in thinking about this play as well. So. Um, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when we get to the end, and with the Ezekiel wheel imagery and the four-headed angel that um, that is described on that wheel in some accounts. So, yes, I'd be happy to send you the list of the music. Oh, super! Thank you. Yeah, and and uh, Celeste, I know I know you have to go, and, and James, I know you're on vacation. Um, so uh, <laughs> I was going to ask you all, um, you know, and you and you could respond like that if you like, uh, Celeste, um, and uh, and Daryl um, uh, about you know favorite scenes or whatever. Um, but I also wanted to ask you if if you want to do this other uh, question is if you could maybe talk about your artistic ancestry as as we conclude. Um, sort of, um, you know, your artistic ancestors, like as as inspiration um, or as continuing the work, um, or why you are doing the work that you do as artists. Who wants to go? Uh, first? Sure, I, I I'll, I'll go. Uh, <laughs> uh, I um, the very first play that I wrote that I chose. Well, the first first play that I read. Excuse me. 
um, that I chose for myself that I picked off of a shelf to read was Seven Guitars by August Wilson. And uh, that play has always stuck with me because, of course, in high school, you have to read like a Hamlet and Julius Caesar. And I think I read The Crucible. Like you read plays. So I knew what a play was. But there was something about that play. It's a memory play, one, which is was like jarring for me because I always thought plays had to happen in like real time. And so you suddenly have a play that is a memory and it's a collective memory. Like all of these people are remembering all of these things together. Uh, and Vera is remembering very specifically what's happened to her. And I thought it was really beautiful. And I was like, oh, I want to, I, I think that if I were to write a play, it would, it would feel like this. It wouldn't be regular. Mm. <laughs> no shade to regular. <laughs> it would be, it would, it would mess with the form. And before I even knew how to talk about form and content, um, I knew that. And then in college, the next playwright that I encountered that really, um, sort of shaped my thinking about plays was um, Susan Miller Parks and the early plays like the America play and betting on the death commander, those plays that were so um, were written essentially in sound instead of in text. Like she writes how these people should sound and then the actors perform those sounds. And through that, that's, synthesis of the actor we get the language and in the musicality that she's really famous for now uh, and she's a playwright that I've continued to read um, I grew up re- reading comic books um, and so that's another big piece of my um, artistic DNA really is is world building um, I want to create a world that sort of sits just a skew of our own in the way that comic books do. So that way we can have a way to examine what we are dealing with, with a little bit of distance. And I think that's how you learn, oh, this is how I'm screwing this up. If you have, you need just a touch of distance, I think. And then hopefully a play sort of closes that gap so that by the end of the play, we're all sort of sitting in the same room together. Um, so that, that's me. I also grew up in the church, which is like high, high theater. So <laughs> I love that too. <laughs> um, I, it is. I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to just jump on real quick. Um, James, I am the exact same way with magical realism books. Um, growing oh, up, my mom, yeah, my mom gave me a book uh, to read every week. And uh, I would have to turn it, turn it into her every Sunday. So I spent most of my childhood and still most of my present-day life um, just in magical realist worlds. Um, and so I, I find that that is the, the practiced way that I've been. I've been conditioned to make worlds inside of my head um, just from text my whole life. Um, and I love it. I love, I love occupying these spaces that, um, like James said, are a little bit askew. They're derivative of our world, but something's a little bit off. Um, and I think that's how we get to examine yeah, our place here. And as far as examination, I know you wanted us to talk about ancestral artistry. Um, I'm first generation American. And most, most importantly, I'm the first person in my family that has the time, space and luxury to um, recognize my blackness, and therefore examine it. Um, First one to go to college, all of that stuff. And so I find that um, there wasn't a lot of knowledge around black American, anything passed down to my family because they haven't been here. So 
so the work that I take um, is very much an examination for myself um, into my black identity and the shared black consciousness um, and how we can put that up against a mirror or shine light through it um, to understand what's going on. Um, a playwright that I work with, that I'm working with right now, Christina Anderson, said that her primary oh. line of inquiry is, um, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Um, her primary Christina. line of inquiry is that uh, black, <laughs> the black experience in America is science fiction. Um, and so yeah. that really stuck with me in, in how I create my sets. Um, putting black bodies up against a white background is very intentional, too. Like, she's never felt blacker when, well, unless you're against something white. Um, so... Yeah, I think a lot of what I do is um, examination um, of history that I grew up in, but wasn't necessarily um, passed down or explained to me um, because my family came over a little bit later. Um, and yeah, I, I really enjoy world building too. That's, that's all I do. I love creating impermanent places um, that are referenced to our world and are definitely grounded in um, precedent from our world, but allow you to also examine um, like everybody allows everybody to examine their experience um, on this planet as well. Wow. Yeah. So Celeste, yeah. I know you have to go, but I was wondering before you take off, could, could I ask you um, if you could tell us sort of where, you know, like where is your ancestry? You mentioned that you are first generation um, here and the first mm-hmm. um, with, with the opportunity and the time, I guess you said to examine blackness. First, you mm-hmm. know, to graduate from college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, my mom's family is from Guyana, which is um, mm. it's a small sort of series of nations in the northern part of South America. So they're culturally Caribbean, mm-hmm. um, and then they were colonized by the British. Have a lot of Indian influence. Uh, so my family specifically was taken, we believe, from West Africa, and instead of coming to the U.S., they came to, they, they got um, shipped to South America um, mm-hmm. and then found their way here. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a lot of, lot of rich, rich African history in uh, Guyana. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and also American, like what happened there, The you know, the... Um, around the colonialism and destruction yeah. of of the black government, there really, really terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. then Jim Jones, People's Temple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, wow. Well, uh, thank you so much. It's been really wonderful speaking to you, and uh, and safe travels. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I'm gonna bow out. Um, thank you, James. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you, Wanda. Um, hope to talk soon. Mm-hmm. Oh, Thanks for that. Yeah. Take care. Thank you for that. Okay. Daryl. Yes. <laughs> your um your uh I guess artistic ancestry or your favorite scene, um, whichever one you want to go. I hope you do the artistic ancestry. <laughs> uh well um see I'm 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 a lit I have a few more years on James and Celeste. Um, uh, they are, but like James and Celeste both, um, I grew up, I, I've actually been doing theater my whole life. I directed my first play in elementary school <laughs> and then actually had the, had the chutzpah to, um, 
to to go to local churches and uh, other schools and ask them to let us do the play, and they did. Um, it was you're a good man, Charlie Brown. But I say, I grew up in the theater, and I started pretty much in musical theater. Um, uh, I, I'm a singer and an actor and and a dancer. Um, but because I I I I grew up just studying acting music and dance it was all one to me i never saw any huge separation between those disciplines so when i find a theatrical piece where music and movement and and text are working together to create this fantasy world those are the plays that i'm really drawn to and um because i I hear rhythm in text. I see movement in text. I feel, I hear, I see intention in movement. So it all just works together for me. Um, as far as one of the most important mentors that I had in my life, and I'm so fortunate to have had her, is Glenda Dickerson. Um, Glenda was the first African-American woman to direct on Broadway. Um, she was a feminist and uh, way, you know, way before her time. Or the, and she was also on the forefront of African-American theater in the 60s and 70s. Um, so she, she, she instilled in me a great love and pride in setting the record straight in telling our story from our point of view. And there were times in my life when I complained about being pigeonholed as, uh, they only hire me to direct the black plays, blah, blah. But now I, I feel like this is my calling. This, this, you know, the idea that we are, sent here not for ourselves but to do service um plays like kill move paradise i feel are are my service to the community and um so uh yeah so that's a little bit about you know why i do it and how i've done it pretty much my whole life mm mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah, thank you so much for um, you know, um sharing uh Glenda Dickerson's um uh I guess name and work and relationship with you you know, with our audience who might not know her work. I just looked her up and I'm like, Oh man, wow. Glenda Dickerson was iconic, director, folklorist, adapter, writer, choreographer, actor, black theater organizer and educator. And she was born in February ninth, nineteen forty five in Houston, Texas and made her transition January 12, 2012, in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah, she's uh, she was really a a, a pioneer. Uh, um, mm-hmm. For a while, she was at Spelman. She was the head of the theater program at Spelman, and I met her when I was teaching at University of Michigan. We we landed there at the same time, uh, and um, she she. Um, yeah, she just really was the first. I don't think up to Glenda, I don't think I had had specifically an African-American theater teacher or mentor. 
um, because I had gone to schools that, you know, that had predominantly white teachers. So I, I, I landed at University of Michigan as a professor, but Glenda, uh, as an assistant professor, but Glenda was a full professor, and she really just she taught me what it is to be an African American artist, and uh, mm. I am forever grateful. <laughs> nice, nice, yeah, yeah. It's sort of like you know, I'm thinking about you know the character Issa, and and how you know um, just over you know the way he just sort of holds the space literally, and and just has this really wonderful compassion um and patience um you know the the group the men and the boy become uh but they're already connected but they it becomes intentional you know their relationship to one another they have, they sort of develop a true brotherhood over the course of the conversations and and them being able to come to grips with where they are in that moment and and the memories that they have of how they got to the, got to the place where they are and then the shared memories about being black men you know in America and then having America sort of reflecting that back at them you know because of the presence of America in the play as audience as character it's just it's just really really brilliant james the way you did this <laughs> thank you and that's why he won yeah. that kesseling award it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really yeah, brilliant many more to come. well deserved well deserved thank you yeah thank you yeah Wow. So I'm going to let you all, you know, get back to your lives. But I was wondering, um, are you working on anything that our audiences should be looking out for? Um, James, any plays, you know, sort of that you're working on presently? Um, anything opening? Are you going to be in something that we can attend? Um, um, and then, uh, Daryl, um, do you is there life after um, Kill, Move, Paradise? Um, are you working on something else like after this um, that you can uh, speak about? I am. I'll let James go first. Uh, well, I am. Um, I have a, there's another production of Kill Move in Chicago at Timeline Theater. Oh. Um, I think in the mm. spring. Uh, Steppenwolf mm-hmm. is doing a production of an older play of mine called The Most Spectacularly Lamentable Trial of Ms. Martha Washington, which is about... Mm. Um, uh, apparently, Martha Washington freed her slaves before she died, and it was in George Washington's will that the slaves would be freed upon her death. And a lot of scholars think that the reason why she freed them is because she thought they were trying to kill her. Uh, so I wrote a play that sort of goes, well, what if they really were? <laughs> and so that's what that play <laughs> is. Um, oh, that sounds also funny, great. Also Where's that going to be? You know, uh, at Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago. Um, okay. And then that's that's it. I'm directing a few things in Philadelphia. Um, I'm directing a play called My General Tubman, which is a new play. Uh, mm. And I'm also directing um, the Philadelphia premiere of uh, Alicia Harris's play, Is That Is, at the Wilma Theater. Mm. Wow. So uh, General Tubman is about Harriet Tubman? Yes. It's about uh, Harry Tubman and mass incarceration, and there's magical realism, what? and I'm really I'm jazzed about it. Yeah, it's great. It's a world cool. premiere play by uh, Lorraine Carey. Yeah. 
Oh, when is that? Is that fall or now or? It it'll be in the winter. It'll be in uh, February. Oh, 2020. Naturally. Oh, I'm gonna have to make my yeah. way to Philadelphia. It's gonna be cold there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, wow, that sounds awesome. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Nice. Well, we can have another conversation with the um, uh, the playwright. Um, you know, maybe in January. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that'll be fun. And then the other ones in Chicago sound great. Wow, Martha Washington, that sounds fun. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a fun play. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. And do you have a website so people can, like, follow you and just keep abreast of things that are going on? I do. Uh, My website is uh, www.com. James Imes, and that's J A M E S I J A M E S dot com. Okay, cool, super. All righty. And Daryl. Well, uh, let's see. First, I want to ask James to make sure to to send me some of his new plays because I'm or old, even old plays. I just want more James Imes work. Um, oh, but, okay. <laughs> Uh, and um, yes, I've got uh, what's coming up. I am acting in um, the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner that is going to be done by at, at done at Word for Word, um, oh, the Word nice. for Word Theater Company in San Francisco at Z Space. Um, mm-hmm. So that starts rehearsals in a couple of weeks, actually, uh, and goes up in October. I'm also, okay. you know, still the acting artistic director of the Lorraine Hansberry, so we are also preparing to open Single Black Female that will be directed mm-hmm. by A.J. Mitchell. Um, yeah, and that is. opens, yes, he is, and that opens in October. Uh, okay. And then in December, I direct um, at Center Rep, um, in Walnut Creek, um, the, um, the devil's music, the life and blues of Bessie Smith. Um, Ooh. so that's, that's a play with music and, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, I don't know what's after that. I, I, I need a vacation after that. I think, uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> no, actually after that, the Lorraine Hansberry will then do intimate apparel by Lynn Nottage. Um, oh, nice. So we a, a lot going on, a lot going on. Mhm. Right. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful. Wonderful theater. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm gonna have to put all this in my calendar. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. It's been a really, it's been a really wonderful conversation. Gosh, um, James, uh, Daryl, you know, it was really wonderful. I'm so happy Celeste could also join us before she jets off to Singapore. Um, <laughs> Yeah, really, really wonderful conversation, and um, yeah, looking forward to, um, I might be able to, well, I, I definitely going to def- let people know about, you know, attending the play, and I might be able to get back one more time, but thank you for the work, James. It is it is just really, you know, uh, just really develops our character and, and our, our capacity for, for compassion and, and empathy, um, you know, these characters and this work that you do. Well, thank you for spreading the word. I appreciate it. Sure. And, Daryl, you are just a phenomenal director and actor and 
choreographer and musician and thank you for for your you know ability to take um uh you know something that could be static and 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 make it a world that we enter because we trust the kind of worlds that you create you know with the work that you feel called to so thank you for recommending this wonderful work because who knows we might not have seen it well you're most welcome and thank you for the service that you do to our community here um it's very important so thank you oh you're welcome well both of y'all take good care and have a wonderful rest of the day you too you too Take right, care, James. Okay. You too, Daryl. Come right. on. Bye bye. So we are going to rebroadcast um, <laughs> uh, a wonderful uh, uh, show that we had um, last week, and it was a special broadcast. And we had on the air. Let me tell you really quickly. Um, we had on the air uh, Daryl uh, E. Stenvall-Wells. Uh, she's director of Art Responders. And there's a new exhibit that just opened last week uh, called um, at, a, at Root Division Gallery in Soma, south of Market, um, which is called Colorism, the Spectrum of Internalized Bias. And... Um, and then um, we also had on the air Michael Gene Sullivan and Daniel Savio to talk about the San Francisco Mime Troupe 60th anniversary season and and uh, production Treasure Island, and it continues through September. And uh, and then uh, we close with a w- really wonderful conversation with Stephanie Linder, who is the um, uh, executive um, director of the San Francisco Botanical Garden. Uh, society and she joined us and Cash joined us to talk about flower piano and Cash you missed him unfortunately he um, was the uh, special uh, guest performer uh, last Sunday at um, the uh, flower piano and he uh, and Cash Killian and Killian's Trillions Exotic World Instruments presentation and world music um, you missed that but this weekend on Sunday I think same time, twelve thirty to two. You can uh, you can catch uh, uh, Tammy Hall, and Tammy Hall is going to join us tomorrow to talk about her tribute to some really wonderful um, uh, women uh, women vocalists. Um, and uh, Flower Piano is an event that happens every year uh, in the Botanical Gardens, and there are twelve pianos that are situated in different intimate spaces within the Botanical Gardens. And for people that live in San Francisco. Uh, it's a, it's free. You can actually um, um, you can uh, you can visit the gardens for free. But if you are not a San Francisco resident, I think it's like five dollars. But the concerts are a little bit more expensive. Um, but anyway, it's really beautiful. I went last Friday um, to the opening evening, and there was music in the garden, and there were little pianos for the little people to be able to play. Little baby grand pianos, really cute. And uh, it's just, just a really wonderful, wonderful atmosphere to have music in these, this fabulous garden, which takes up acres and acres. And so that's what they talk about um, in this interview. So if we don't get a chance to have time to finish the whole um, interview, then you can uh, go back into the archives and for uh, July 9th and listen to the interview. 
with uh, these wonderful guests. So thanks so much for joining us. Peace and blessings. Para su Good morning and welcome to Wanda Six, a black arts and culture program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, uh, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims, so we should certainly exercise our options and not feel that uh, we are victims or without agency. We are uh, waiting to speak to a wonderful uh, curator who has a show opening this week. Um, Daryl uh, is um, director of an organization called Arts Responders, and um, they uh, curate arts ex exhibitions and events with a social and racial justice focus. And a few years back, um, Daryl curated a show at Oakland's Betty Ono Gallery called Viral, 25 Years from Rodney King, and, and I saw that exhibit. It was pretty phenomenal. And this week, um, they're launching a new exhibition uh, at Roots Division Gallery and SOMA in, called Colorism and uh, the Spectrum of Internalized Bias. And uh, so we are waiting for him to join us. He is out of the country right now. I don't remember where he is exactly. <laughs> but um, but it's going to be really great uh, speaking to him when he joins us uh, in the studio. And um, he said that this show has a lot of personal significance for uh, for him and his family and this extended African-American community in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. Um, however, the show also explores colorism among Asian, African, and Latin American diaspora as well. And uh, he's got... Uh, work from over 20 established and emerging artists, and so um, it should be really awesome. And, and there are going to be uh, some special programs uh, be this week 
uh, at the uh, opening reception, and they're going to have a panel with some famous, not famous, but some maybe famous, <laughs> uh, definitely um, uh, well-respected um, scholars on the topic. And, and there's going to be a film screening on July 25th, so he's going to join us and talk about all of that. And, um, and while we wait for him to join us, I am going to uh, uh, play some music. Uh, Destiny Muhammad is going to be performing this evening uh, at the Stanford. Um, trying to think, what did she tell me? Uh, she, I, I got an email this morning. Let me let me look real quick. Yeah, because Destiny Destiny Muhammad Harper's from the Hood is always a phenomenal. Um, yeah, she's going to be at the Stanford, her trio is going to be at the Stanford Shopping Center today from, I believe, um, oh, no, it's not today, sorry. It's Thursday, uh, the 11th, from 6 to 7.30. So that's going to be really awesome. And, uh, oh, there is, I guess I've been talking long enough. <laughs> oh, good morning, Daryl. How are you? Good morning. Can you hear me Okay. Oh yes, yes I can. How are you? Um, I was I had you on speaker, but I'll I'll turn that off. Is that better? Oh, I can hear you. <laughs> oh, can you hear me? So, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, so tell us about um Art Responders. Well, um it was founded in 2013, uh, my shortly after the death of my brother, um, that was also the year that um, actually the summer of 2014 was when it really got into full swing uh, when Michael Brown died. Initially, um, it was devoted to publicizing artists' responses to police brutality, and that was how it Mm-hmm. Uh, manifested initially as a social media platform for sharing art uh, about police brutality. And that evolved. And as an artist, I had a relationship with a gallery in Los Angeles, where I'm from. And they had seen that the work I was doing with art responders, and they asked me if I was interested in putting together an exhibition. And so um, I was living in the Bay Area at the time, and I started gathering some of the work. And that turned into our first exhibition, which was called Viral, 25 Years from Rodney King. And it uh, featured initially about 50 artists uh, tracking 25 years from the um, Rodney King assault by LAPD to the present day. And uh, then it moved to, after launching in Los Angeles, we moved to Oakland. We had a show at Betty Ono in 2016. And um, that was followed by an event series commemorating the Los Angeles uh, uprisings in spring of 2017. So it really started to evolve from uh, the police brutality focus to a more general racial and restorative justice focus through art events and education. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned to our audience before you joined us that 
that that I um, I was I was able to attend by or I think it was I went to the reception because um, I know mm-hmm. um, Isu um, is one of the artists that was um, in that show and uh, mm-hmm. and so I got a chance to talk to him a little bit about about the exhibition and what it was all about yeah mm-hmm. yeah um, so tell us about um, about colorism the spectrum of internalized bias you sent me. Um, some uh, work to to look at. I didn't know um, besides who the artist is, sort of what the titles of. Maybe you could uh, tell us about you know some of the representative artists. I think you mentioned you have 20 artists, or maybe more than 20. Maybe 20 are from the Bay Area. Yeah, but tell us about colorism, and uh, as well as um, some of the special events that are happening uh, this week, opening week, and throughout the uh, exhibit. Okay, um, so it kind of, uh, colorism started to evolve in my mind while I was uh, forming and researching the viral show. Um, particularly, we had a piece called the First Person Shooter Task in the show that mm-hmm. uh, was mm-hmm. actually a sociology experiment in the form of a video game where a person uh, would have to try and figure out if a figure coming across the screen was armed and react very quickly and decide whether to shoot or not. And this was used in police training to determine uh, whether police to detect internal um, implicit bias. And what they found was that um, black people were just as likely as white people to shoot an unarmed black person first. Um, in other words, they were less likely to shoot uh, an armed white person. Um, so I started to think about how that, what that meant and how uh, African-Americans and other people have, of color have internalized these kind of um, myths about the violence of darker-skinned people or about the um, danger associated with darker skin, and it just led me down a path. In addition to my own personal experience as an African-American in a family with many different skin tones and the kind of stratification that is associated with uh, darker and lighter skin within a family that's very um, misunderstood or ignored outside of the black community. So I wanted to delve into that and research a bit more. And um, that's when I started to look into putting together an exhibition on this. So there were some artists that I knew I wanted to feature that had submitted work for the um, viral exhibition, or there was one artist in particular, Nafis White, whose work was supposed to be in viral. She had a beautiful neon piece, and um, it broke in transit. So it was really um, an unfortunate situation, but she was an artist I knew I wanted to work with in the future. So one of the pieces that I sent you that is a sort of um, relief called High Yellow, well, it's it's a sculptural piece, um, has to do with hair textures and hi- hierarchies within the black community having to do with appearance. 
um, European appearance versus more African appearance. So um, that was uh, one piece. I had a few other artists that I had sort of looked into, and one of the people who helped me uh, when I was putting together the antiviral event series was a woman named Elena Mancarelli, who worked at uh, Red Poppy Art House. And she's Italian. She had moved back. She was about to move back to Italy. But I asked her to help me uh, try to find a, a venue that might be interested in hosting this exhibition. And um, she was the person who helped me locate uh, the, the guest curator program at Root Division, where the exhibition is opening. Uh, so we mm -hmm. applied uh, last summer for their guest curators program, and we were selected. So um, then I start. We put out an open call. So a lot of the artists in the show, the majority of them, were selected via the open call, which we put up um, on the California Arts Council site and multiple other sites to try and find artists. But a lot of them ended up being uh, recognized artists from the Bay Area. We have Pilar um, Aguero Esparza, uh, Ron Moultrie Saunders. Um, we have a number of really great Bay Area artists whose names are recognized. And then we have a number of emerging artists as well. Anyanye Alheri, she was in the Betty Yono show. Um, I <laughs> there are so many. Um, we have one Camilo Vergara, who's a Colombian American artist. Um, we really have tried to show an array of um, communities of color from all over the world in this show. And um, starting this weekend, the big launch is during the second Saturday's event on. on at Root Division from 6.30 to 8.30. And then uh, Thursday on the 18th of July, we have a speakers panel uh, with Maggie Hunter, who is a professor at Mills College. She's a real expert in this area and has done extensive research into the effects of colorism, as well mm -hmm. as Joanne Rondia, who is a professor at San Jose State. And Pilar Aguero Esparza is speaking on behalf of some of the artists who work around these issues. So mm. those are the two first events. Then we have a film screening on the 24th of July and a big closing event and catalog release on August 10th. Mm -hmm. And, and, the and film? all the films are going to be screening. Sorry. Um, we're we're going to film, uh, we're going to screen a lot of shorts. Um, and, and selections from different um, filmmakers, uh, selections from the film Imitation of Life, which is a, a mm -hmm. classic film from the 1930s with Claudette Colbert and Louise Hayes um, about a, a maid and her daughter who passes for white. Um, that's a real classic uh, in this genre. And uh, the film School Days by Spike Lee, which is one of his oh, okay. less recognized films, but has some uh, really amazing musical numbers uh, dealing with colorism at um, black universities and within sororities, uh, black sororities and fraternities. 
So we'll show some right. selections from that. But we also have some really amazing film shorts and uh, even music videos dealing with this issue from the last 20 years or so across the um, African diaspora mainly, but also mm -hmm. some other communities of color um, as well. So that should be a really oh, exciting wow. event. Mm -hmm, certainly, certainly. And who's um, who's curating your film series? Um, I am. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I've been, <laughs> I mean, I, I I run everything by. I have to say, uh, Samantha Reynolds, who works at Root Division, has been a great help in this putting together this exhibition. I run everything by her. I have a colleague named Julia Zuli who is a native San Franciscan um, of Nicaraguan descent, um, but she's been helping me. Uh, she's a close friend of mine who has also been helping me with the development of the show and trying to extend the ideas beyond the African-American community. Um, and as I said, Elena Mancarelli. So we, we sh I share all my ideas with, with all of them. But this is an issue that's been very, a very big part of my own life experience. And so um, in, in selecting the films and the clips, I've been um, the main person sort of putting the ideas out there. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so where are you calling us from? I, I, I mentioned to our guests that you're out of the country. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm in the Bay Area now. I, I live in London oh. now. <laughs> what, but I'm oh, visiting okay. for, for the exhibition, not the entire duration of the exhibition, the film series, um, the film screening. Julia will be introducing the films, and Elena will be representing art responders at the closing event. But um, mm -hmm. I did fly in for the event. What happened was... <laughs> After um, the Trump election, my partner and I decided that we wanted to leave the U.S. for a while, <laughs> and um, mm -hmm. he was offered a, a position in London, and so we moved, uh, not knowing how long it was going to last. But at, at that point, I had already um, collaborated with Elena, and, and we had discussed moving forward with this exhibition. So she mm -hmm. is the person who really got out there and, and tried to locate um, the exhibition uh, venue. And um, mm -hmm. when it when it came through in the um, in September, we both started working. Um, well, all of us started working on it. Um, but I was um, I in January I started a new full time job <laughs> as as the whole thing got on into full gear. So it has been a very busy time, but this is a real labor <laughs> of love. And um, mm. I, I wanted to see it through. Right, right, yeah. So do you have art yourself in, in this exhibition, Colorism, the Spectrum yes. of Internalized Bias? Oh, okay, tell us yes, about your I work. Do. Well, um, <laughs> it's as it happens, complete coincidence, but I was an art teacher for many years and um, in the Bay Area as well. Um, but I, I moved away from teaching in schools as a full-time teacher and started uh, doing art workshops in museums and galleries. And um, then mm -hmm. in January, in December, I was hired by this organization called the Linnaean Society, which is a really old 18th century um, scientific organization that does an art and science integration program in schools. 
And um, it, Carl Linnaeus is the um, naturalist. He was a Swedish naturalist who developed the whole system of taxonomy that we still use today in biology. So he created the binomial nomenclature system. So homo sapiens, mm -hmm. uh, for example, is a term for humans. But um, all the two-part naming that we use for species of both plants and animals was conceived and developed by um, Carl Linnaeus. And it just so happens that mm -hmm. I was in <laughs> going through a cabinet at work, um, and I saw a box that was labeled faulty medallion. And um, <laughs> I, I asked the office manager, what is in that box? titled, you know, labeled false, faulty medallions. And she said, oh, that's some of our medallions that were chipped or that were made improperly, and we were going to throw them away. But I, I said, oh, why don't we just save them just in case we can use them somehow? So there are these small um, porcelain medallions that have a profile of Carl Linnaeus. And as it happens, Linnaeus also has something to do with the development of the theories of racial categories. This was part of his, um, his pursuit of categorizing all life on Earth. <laughs> and um, his, his categories were um, incorrect <laughs> in this case. And, you know, as, uh, through my research into uh, colorism, I've gotten into the science of racial classifications and discovered that, you know, most scientists understand that race itself is just a construct um, that was developed to reinforce existing uh, European power structures. So, um, mm -hmm. I mean, Carl Linnaeus was not a villain in this regard. He, he did question, he, he was not as fundamentally... Um, you know, many scientists who believe that uh, non-whites were subhuman, he, he was not in that category. But he developed mm -hmm. this system of categorizing that um, has been the cause of so much stratification and racial hi hierarchies in many ways. So I've created a piece using these faulty medallions as the basis to explore this idea of um, mm. The, the hierarchies that we live with, the stratification, and, and what its history and roots are in um, European colonial power. Oh, wow. That sounds really fascinating. Thank you. I hope it turns mm -hmm. out. I just, I'm glad to be able to use my um, work with this very old organization to explore this more contemporary um, idea. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about um, about the uh, the gallery. I I don't think I've ever been there before, and um, uh, yeah. Um, and you want to know about it? I, I like. To, yeah, yeah. I don't know the gallery um, uh, where where your exhibition is um, is going to be oh. um, you know um, presented for. For about a month, which is great, um, through August yeah. August 10th, right? That's correct. Um, so Root mm -hmm. Division is a really great organization that supports local emerging uh, Bay Area artists um, through a variety of means. People can apply for an artist studio. Um, mm -hmm. So if you don't have a workspace and you, you need some time to just develop your work, um, they can help with that. 
they, they have an, a program where, whereby you can apply for space. You can get mm-hmm. um, help with classes and developing your skills. Uh, they bring in artists and um, other arts world professionals to talk to you about your work. Uh, so they, they do that service. They have um, kids' workshops. Um, they have events and classes. So it really is a community arts center. It's not just a gallery. And um, as part of their arts programming, though, they do have a gallery that puts on some really um, wonderful shows. All their shows are subjected to an open call. So nobody can come in and just say, I want to have this show with all my friends in it and <laughs> or all my favorite artists. <laughs> they, always, they always open it up. It's very democratic, you know. They, they open it up to the public mm-hmm. and let people submit, um, let artists, submit their work with a focus on local Bay Area artists. Um, I know it's partially sponsored by the San Francisco Arts Commission, where I once worked, um, as well as a number oh, really? of private oh, you once worked donors. Oh, okay. Yes, I did. And um, did oh. you? Oh, okay. Hmm. Um, and uh, they have... Um, they 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 are located in Civic Center, Soma area. So if you go okay. to um, take part to Civic Center, and you just go down Seventh to Mission, um, it's right there. So um, it's really a nice space. When you it looks quite inconspicuous mm-hmm. from the outside, but when you go inside, it's it's quite big and and well lit and and a very nice professional art space and all their events are free and open to the public so I think we should really support them they provide um, excellent um, they've been a very supportive gallery I mean they have um, helped to fund um, the speakers panel guests the catalog um, they've taken care of installation they, they've been very helpful every point of the way to bring this exhibition to life Right, nice, nice. Um, well, we have a few more minutes, Candace. Wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, you are in London now. You've been an art teacher. You're a curator. Mm-hmm. You were on the uh, California Arts Commission. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, you are. Um, you, I guess you grew up in Los Angeles and then you moved to the Bay yeah. Area or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, but fill in some of the details. How did you become an artist? <laughs> well, it's funny because I've really, I really, it's not just been a one-way uh, thing to London. I've lived there on and off since the 90s uh, because I did mm-hmm. go to graduate school there um, way back when. But what happened was I started off um, as a muralist in um, Los Angeles, oh. and I, I first uh, assisted uh, local mural artists uh, if you're from L.A., you would know a group called uh, East Low Streetscapers who have done some really amazing murals. So I apprenticed with them. Um, I did a number of murals for the Department of Cultural Affairs there. I was a very committed muralist, um, but I started and I started off teaching art in um, Los Angeles Unified School District in East L.A., um, but I ended up moving to New York for a time. I was an art teacher in the South Bronx for an organization called Studio in a School. 
And then um, I was in debt and had student loans and um, got an opportunity <laughs> to go and teach art in London at the American School in London, which I thought I was only going for a short time to help pay off my student loans. Um, but I, I ended up meeting my now husband there, and um, that has caused this back and forth between America and London since then. Um, so I have a I have UK citizenship now. I'm an English citizen as well as a US citizen, and um, you know it's very interesting to talk about colorism because um, moving there has shown me so much about you know African Americans can come to think we're the main uh, part of the African diaspora outside of Africa. <laughs> And um, it's, it's just awakened me. There's a, there's a huge black community, uh, Afro-Caribbean community in, in London that's very vibrant. There's all kinds of stratification between the um, African communities and Caribbean communities and South Asian communities. Because in England, black means anyone who's not white. So if you're Indian, mm-hmm. you're considered black. If you're, um, if you're from Pakistan... You might be, you would be considered black. So it mm-hmm. it, it challenges your um, conceptions about race and how we think about race, and um, so it's it's it has contributed. My relationship with with England and UK has contributed to my um, questioning of what race is and how it contributes to who we are and how we think of ourselves. Uh, yeah, excellent, excellent. Wow. Well, it's been um, really, really wonderful speaking to you, and I'm really looking forward to seeing this exhibition. Um, oh, yeah, great. it's um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And thank you so much for reaching out um, to let me know about it because not at all. Thank you your for announcement was. was <laughs> I'm yeah, a fan of the yeah, Bayview yeah. paper, and um, you know, I mm-hmm. hope that your uh, listeners and readers will come out and see the show. And if you do come and uh, want to say hello? I will be around until July 22nd, and so um, I hope to see you there. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I plan on coming, and uh, and I will let our our um, print media audiences um, know about it as well, so they don't miss this uh, opportunity to um, to see this this work. Because people hear about the term colorism, uh, I know you're going to be having. Uh, some scholars talking about it, but maybe might mm-hmm. not um, sort of be conversant in what the term means as well as, um, you know, being able to see the great art that explores this particular um, uh, term. Oh, great. Well, also, if you want mm-hmm. to keep track of our future events, um, you can always check us out um, at Art Responders on Twitter. And um, on Facebook as well, um, our, at Art Responders is our um, page. Yeah, your your the name of um, of your organization, Art Responders, sounds like sort of like a first aid. Um, yeah, uh, aesthetic <laughs> kind of first aid, like something going on. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, you know, you mentioned the Rodney King uh, viral exhibit. And mm-hmm. and so people thinking, what, 25 years? Wow, it's been 25 years. Oh, my goodness, right? Um, and yeah. what has changed, you know. And and then, you know, colorism. So, you know, that's something that this particular uh, administration um, here in this nation um, sort of makes you think about colorism as well as other things. Um, and 
Yeah, yeah. I know you have to go, but I just have to say one last thing, you know, in terms of Mm -hmm. why we're bringing this out into the open. You know, one of the things you mentioned, the administration, part of my reason to do shows like this, you know, sometimes, or this show in particular, I look at people, figures like Clarence Thomas or Candace Owens, and I think about why are these people the way they are? Why do they seem to have so much hatred for people of their own community? And that is the part about internalized bias that I really wanted to bring out is why do people absorb feelings of hate for other people of their own identity group? And I think Mm -hmm. it's really an issue that needs to be explored if we're going to ever, you know, stop producing the Clarence Thomases and the Candace Owens of the world, because um, I think that part of their actions does come from, you know, a sense of self, self-hatred um, in, in a sense. Not to, not to get too political on your viewers, I mean your listeners, but I think that's a, that's a food for thought about why it's well, important to this issue. Well, with, with an organization called art responders, and an exhibit called Colorism, the Spectrum of Internalized Bias. <laughs> Once again, at Ruth Division <laughs> Gallery in Soma, uh, July 11th through August 10th. <laughs> um, it kind of makes sense, why, right? I mean, art is okay. politics. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> okay, good. so no problem. You don't have to apologize. <laughs> good. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me, Wanda. Oh, you're welcome, Daryl. You take good care, and congratulations on this wonderful okay. show that's getting ready to go up. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Um, stay in touch. Sure. Peace and lessons. Uh, All righty. So all good. right. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 So we are joined in the studio um, by uh, <clears throat> Michael Jean Sullivan and... Daniel Savio, good morning. How are both of you doing? Good morning. I'm doing morning. well, thank you. Uh, good, good, hello? Good to talk to you again, Wanda. Yeah, good to talk to you too, Michael. Great seeing both of you. Uh, and good meeting you, um, Daniel, at the opening of the San Francisco Mind Truth 50th anniversary season. Congratulations, it's been 50 years. It's like, wow, really? You all started in 1959? Like, wow. 60 years. I mean, wow. That's, yeah. I mean, that's before you were born, probably both of you. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, great tradition, right? Yeah. I mean, 60 yeah, years, I mean, not right. 60 years. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that, uh, you know, there aren't many companies, let alone theater companies, that have managed to last this long through all of these turbulent times through the civil rights movement and through the anti-war movement and the feminist movement and then unfortunately back through another civil rights movement and another feminist movement and another (laughs) anti-war movement that's kind of part of the history of the united states you know the environmental movement we just keep unfortunately having to fight the same fights over and over again Mm -hmm. yeah certainly certainly and uh and then Daniel, um, you know, Salio, um, you know, the free speech movement too, right? Uh, well, I wasn't there myself, as, as you say. <laughs> but you have a connection. 
I have a connection. Yeah, that's you right. have a definite uh, connection. <laughs> yes, uh, my my mother likes to refer to it as my Berkeley pedigree, um, which is a joke, <laughs> but it's it's fun. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah uh, a, a yeah. connection, and and it became a connection to the troupe as well. Uh, in uh, in 2014, when I got to work with Joan Holden and and Bruce Barthol on our play FSM, so it's a uh, full mm-hmm. circle with that, and now with this also. Right, right. Yeah. Well, let me read a little bit of both of your bios, and then we can talk more about Treasure Island, San Francisco Mime Troupe you know, celebrating the 60th anniversary, and wow, Treasure Island is just one of your, I don't know, all of, every year, I just don't see how you keep on topping yourselves. It's just like, oh my God, this is just so wonderful. It's just so right on target. It's just so, you know, uh, conversant on issues that are, are, that we are grappling with right now, you know, in the Bay Area and also within the country. Um and then you've done it again, you know, with talking about this island uh, sort of as a case in point around what's happening around development, housing development, and and environmental pollution, and, and just capitalism just running its course, irregardless of the toxins, you know, that are yeah. um, a part of the landscape, multiple landscapes here in the Bay Area, particularly those that are former um, military uh uh, places. So anyway, um, Daniel, I'll read yours first because yours is shorter. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, Daniel Savio, music uh, director, lyricist, and musician, started his professional theater career playing for the San Francisco Mime Troupe, participating in the tours for Godfellas, as you mentioned, in 2006, and making a killing in 2007 and returned for Freedom Land 2015, School 2016, and Walls 2017. Uh, he was co-composer and lyricist with uh, San Francisco Mime Troupe veteran uh, Bruce Brothall of the play um, uh, FSM um, 2014, uh, Stage Bridge Senior Theater, written by fellow uh, San Francisco Mime Troupe veteran Joan Holden. Daniel has composed the scores for, uh, for four musicals for young audiences at Stagebridge, and and I want to let our audience know that you are the person who did all of the music um, for this particular production, um, Treasure well, Island. All and of it is, the no. lyrics, I should say, all of the lyrics. All of the lyrics. That the music was actually written okay. by Michael Bello. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, the lyrics. Wow, and and it's just really marvelous. Um, just sort of seeing how. The um, uh, the text of of the play and and the uh, the musical lyrics um, just really complement one another. Um, you know, if a person isn't saying it, then they're singing it, <laughs> and it just yeah. really works really well together. Um, you know that that marriage between um, the music, the lyrics, and um, the uh, the actual the play itself. It's all all together. It's really really wonderful. Um, Thank you. Let's see. You also compose um, musical original music for an early production of Lauren Yee's A Man, His Wife, and His Hat. That was at uh, Alter Theater uh, in 2011. You play keyboards for the 808 Band, uh, winner of the 2011 North Bay Bohemian Award for Best Hip Hop Band. 
which has backed many hip-hop and reggae performers, including KRS-One, MC Radioactive, and Robert Herrera. Uh, you performed as an improv pianist with the Perennials, the Antic Witties. Is That's that how right, you that? the Antic Witties. <laughs> uh, the Unscripted yeah. Theater Company, the Sixth Street Improv, and the Midnight Matinee. You have a BA in music from the University of California at Santa Cruz, and you studied with Bay Area composer Michael Calkin. All righty. Well, welcome again, Daniel. Thank you. And, oh, you're welcome. And, Michael, you are just one of my favorite artists. I mean, you're such a gifted actor, director, and playwright, and you're also the resident playwright at um, uh, San Francisco Lime Troupe. Uh, you're also a teacher. And, uh, yeah, you're just like, I don't know, everything you touch is just fabulous. People just need to have you on just and just just sort of grace, just like just bless whatever it is and it's good. Because <laughs> I've never seen anything you've ever done that wasn't good and thoughtful and provocative and like get up and do something kind of work, right? <laughs> well, that's what I shoot for. And that's yeah, the thing with yeah, the monster is you... always trying to get people to inspire people to activism. You know, mm-hmm. how do you use art, yeah. how do you use theater to get people to see an injustice or see a hypocrisy and go, damn it, i got to do something about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's sort of what keeps you there at the mind, too, because, um, you know, as a person, you, you mentioned um, way back when, when you did that play about um, looking like Huey P. Newton, that mm-hmm. you sort of grew up, you know, sort of as an outing. You all would, you, your family would take you to... Um, uh, to different kinds of protests, and you grew up yeah. with uh, a sign in your hand. You, you thought that's what everybody did. <laughs> yeah, I thought, oh, yeah, we're going to, all the other kids, everybody's going to get out, and we're going to, you know, stop the, you know, military-industrial complex, and we're going to bring change and uh, bring change and civil rights and environmentalism and all of these different things, and uh, we're still doing it, still trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to skip around in your bio, and this is not even a long one. It's a short one. But um, you, um, wow, you have, um, as an actor, appeared in productions at the American Conservatory Theater, California Shakespeare Theater Works, San Francisco Playhouse, Denver Center Theater Company, the Aurora Theater, the Magic Theater, the Marin Theater Company, Lorraine Hansberry Theater, San Francisco Shakespeare Theater Festival, Berkeley Repertory Theater, and San Jose Repertory Theater. Um, you've been principal actor in Mime True Play since 1988. And so as principal actor um, in the Mime True Play since 1988, um, is that when you started at the Mime True? Um, and yeah. who else, like, okay, okay. And and what drew you to the Mime True? Um, and, you know, sort of like, was it an invitation? How, how did you end up there? I, uh, when I was in high school, my father took me to a mind troupe show, and I saw the company. Oh. And at that point, I didn't want to be an actor yet I was or anything in theater. I just wanted to be a history teacher. And uh, mm. not that there's a just. I wanted to be a history teacher. And um, <laughs> But I saw the mind troupe, and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. They are doing history. They're mm-hmm. doing politics. They're, they're being huge, and, and they're being funny. And I was like, this is all the stuff I want to do in life. And so uh, that kind of shifted me, and I started thinking more about becoming an actor. So I always had my eye on the mind troupe as I worked at different theater companies. And then eventually uh, one of their actors dropped out of a show, and they needed a 
they needed a replacement actor. So I came in and auditioned as a replacement actor, and they cast me. Mm, and then after that, wow, they just kept wow. casting me until I became a permanent member. Okay, okay. Wow, that's really neat. Um, are you one of the um, uh, one of the senior um, members of the troupe? Uh, does well, anybody... I am now. Oh, you are. I, I was really started. Oh. Yeah, there are there are, I think two more members who have now been there longer than I have, and you know because mm-hmm. one of the great things about about a theater company like the the mime troupe and there aren't many, or there may not be any, mm-hmm. is that because we don't have an artistic director, we run things more democratically. We have an artistic collective, right. and so I came in as an actor, just like Keiko Shimasato Carrero came in as an actor and Ellen Callis, these are the two people who have been around longer than I have, people that came in as actors, mm-hmm. but then over time there's space for you to say, well, I, well, can I try my hand at acting? And you get to try. Um, you mean you're, you, what you write, it doesn't mean that you write oh. a play and it goes on stage, but everybody can read your stuff and go, okay, well, maybe we can use this scene or maybe we can use that. And after a while of working on our children's theater programs and stuff, directing those, I said, well, can I direct a main stage show? And they were like, yeah, sure, we can try you out at that. So there's space to grow inside the company and try out different things, um, which is how people can end up being there for so long. Mm. Wow, wow. That's that's really great that you get a chance to um, – <clears throat> To try different different um, aspects of of theater, you know, not just an actor, but you can actually try your hand at at writing and directing, and yeah, that's that's sort of like um uh, sort of like a, a living school kind of situation, right? Yeah, and you have a chance to be able to be around these other artists who you can learn mm-hmm. from, like Daniel, like he said, and uh, you know, he was hired as a keyboardist for a show. And then eventually we, we were like, we really like working with him and what he brings to the shows. So we brought him into our collective as a, uh, 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 you know, as a musician, but also as a lyricist. And he hadn't actually written a bunch of songs for us. But there's the space mm-hmm. there for him to say, well, I would like to try to be a lyricist on this show. And we're like, okay. You know, we, he had written a little, <laughs> little bits and we knew his work from other places. So it gave him a chance to kind of grow and expand more inside the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find right. that the the troupe is really unique in this regard. That it's it's not only a uh, a play creation, uh, and it's not only providing educational opportunities for for young people. It's uh, also providing for its members uh, professional development uh, uh, opportunities, um, and that's that's true for me certainly. It's also true for uh, Marie Cartier, who assisted in the writing of. of Year's show, um, mm-hmm. and who also does uh, props and set painting for us. Um, so it's uh, it's really an incredible team um, effort, uh, which is one of the main things that that uh, drew me. And and once I became involved, one of the main things that I I uh, really loved and wanted to continue with because of that. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and and Michael, your um your scripts uh for the San Francisco Mime Troop um has has gotten a lot of awards. Um, for instance, Walls two thousand seventeen nominee for World Premiere Musical Theater, uh Bay Area Awards, um uh and you also um uh did uh, uh, I guess author schools schooled with uh Eugenie uh Chan, um Freedom Land, Ripple Effect with Eugenie Chan and Tanya Schaefer. 
uh, for the greater good, Possibility Died, uh, Too Big to Fall, Too Big to Fall, the 2009 nominee for Best Original Script, San Francisco Bay Area Theater, Critic Circle, uh, Red State, 2008 nominee, Best Original Script, San Francisco Bay Area Theater, Critic Circle, and um, and it goes on and on, you know, um, outside of the uh, San Francisco Mime Troop, you've gotten um, lots of awards, and, and now you are a resident teacher of of the uh, San Francisco Mime Troops Young California Writers Project. Maybe you could tell us about that. And uh, and since last year, you began teaching playwriting at the American Conservatory Theater um, uh, in San Francisco. Um, yeah, so um, tell us a little bit about, um, maybe we can come back to it, but maybe we should, while we're talking about it, tell us about the San Francisco Mime Troops Young California Writers Project. I hadn't known about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's this program. We've been doing it for almost like 20 years now. And what we do is, oh, okay. uh, like we did, and, and we didn't do it this year because of a of a funding problem that the school had. But we work with different schools, and a playwright, normally me, I go into a classroom and work with the students for like 10 weeks. On uh, they have to each one. Uh, take I give them all these exercises, different things. I mean, we talk about politics and philosophy and history and all these different things, whatever it's going to take to get those students to write their own plays. You know, I might start with 30 students, and by the end it's whittled down to like 10. We pick the 10 students who are most passionate about telling their particular story because that's what we're trying to teach them is, you know, you'll see the media and you'll see books and newspapers and movies that will tell you what it's like to be a high school student, but those things are hardly ever written by high school students. They're normally written by, you know, middle-aged men. And so you want to have, what is your voice? What's the thing that's important to you, you know, as a, as a Latinx kid growing up in the mission and through all of the gentrification and the racism and police brutality and whatever, all the stuff that's going on in your lives economically, um, to tell the world your point of view, because this might be the only chance you have to actually have a bunch of people have to sit down and listen, because it's a play. And so we take all we I work with all of the students and get them, like I said, whittle it down to about ten students, and then they write plays, and then we take those plays and we bring in professional directors and professional actors, and we do a one, sometimes a two-night festival at the Mime Troop Studio in the Mission, and we bring it in. It's free for the audience to see. To uh, to have a chance to stage these shows. And it's always great to have mm-hmm. the students a validating thing of whatever their issue is, to see it on stage and have it taken seriously. It's not about, oh, they're just whiny teenagers. They actually have these issues, and here it is, and everybody has to, their parents are there, and their teachers are there, and community members are there. And it's just a great experience for them, and, uh, and it's great for us because we learn a lot from them, from their honesty. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. So tell our audience about Treasure Island, this year's um, play, and wow, how you all pulled it together, and particularly, uh, Daniel, um, how you wrote all these wonderful songs, and there are lots of them. <laughs> how, many, how many songs are there? <laughs> there, there are eight songs in this year's show, which is a, a considerable number relative to uh, what, what we usually do. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really, I just always have to give the credit to my collaborators. Um, there, you know, there, there are lyric ideas in there that came directly from me, but there are a lot of 
ideas that were uh, based on suggestions from uh, Wilma, Wilma Benet, our director, or Michael Bellow, our musical director and composer, or from Michael Sullivan, um, uh, where maybe I had a germ of an idea and then they heard something in it that they mentioned and that blossomed into something larger and more expressive. Um, but uh, always the goal is, uh, well, always the overarching goal is clarity. And in service of that goal, the the uh, sub-goal is that the songs should sound like they're being sung by the characters that the writer created, not in the voice of me, the lyricist, but, but in the voice of those characters. So that's always what we're striving for. Uh, yeah, yeah. So tell us about the play. What's it about? Well, Treasure Island. It's a story of pirates. <laughs> uh, yeah, basically, the idea of it is, you know, that that um, it's the it's a discovery story. Uh, yeah, I don't know how well you know the the traditional Treasure Island story uh, by Robert Louis mm-hmm. Stevenson, the novel from over a hundred years ago, like hundred and thirty or forty years ago, uh, is a story of a a young person who kind of gets swept up in in this adventure, uh, finding a uh, finding a treasure map that takes them to Treasure Island, and then they go off to Treasure Island, and and little do they know they're surrounded by pirates on the boat. But ev- all the pirates are acting like they're helpful people, and then eventually they get to the island. The pirates reveal themselves, and they all fight over the treasure. Um, so in our story, the uh, it, uh, our lead character is Jill Hawkins, who works at the housing department, and is very much a hero, very much a my job is to help the average working person have housing somewhere in San Francisco. And and she's she's very proud of her job and she very much is passionate about it. Is she's fighting the good fight. Uh and then one day it turns out that there's a a mysterious man comes to her office and says that there's this new development that's happening and it's and and uh that it's going to uh, uh, both give all of this housing to to workers in San Francisco, working class folks, but it's also going to enrich him. And he's really about the money. And he's very much, you know, this is going, how I'm going to make all of my money. And I've I've stabbed my friends in the back to get this secret. But he's also dying. And just at the moment when he's dying, he gives her the secret. And he says that the uh, it's on a thumb drive. And he says, you know, the only person who opened this thumb drive is out on Treasure Island cannon blast um <laughs> so she she goes out to treasure island to find out what's going on and she and she finds all of this stuff mainly having to do with the history of of um uh, both in hunter's point and in treasure island about how people were uh workers in the united in san francisco have been forced onto the worst most poisonous most radioactive land that's what San Francisco has done. It's like you push the people of color, you push the the, the those people who are least politically powerful onto the to, to the worst land, the place where there are cancer clusters and asthma and children with leukemia. That's what we ended up with out in Hunters Point and Bayview and on Treasure Island. But after a while, uh, and both of these are Navy, ex-Navy bases, where the Navy back when we were doing all those nuclear tests back in uh. In the 1950s and 60s, the boats from those nuclear tests would come and dock right there, 
and this is before they had a clear understanding of radiation, those boats were radioactive, and they would unload radioactive stuff, and the radiation just leached into the ground. And they did that for a long time, for like almost two decades. And then finally they went, okay, we're going to close the naval bases, and then they tested the bases because they said, well, we can put housing here. And it was so poisoned that no one should have lived there. It should have taken decades to clean it up. But instead, they just kind of said it was clean, and then they built houses for people. And we've been struggling with that ever since. And people, Some people have forgotten these stories. They've forgotten how hard community activists have had to work at getting those areas clean. And they've, had to, and they've forgotten how you know, the people that fought and there were riots, you know, all this stuff to, to, to make sure that we, the average people, get safe affordable housing. Not just affordable housing, but safe affordable housing. And so now we're being told that Treasure Island is the next great housing opportunity, and there are a lot of people that live out there. But the question is, who gets rich off of this? And is it really clean? And so that's mm-hmm. the uh, the plot of the story and, and Jill Hawkins' adventure through all of these things to find out who really benefits. And so in, in coming up with the play, uh, coming up with the issue, uh, discovering the issue and then trying to figure out how to tell the story, I decided, well, it's called Treasure Island, so why not just base it on the book Treasure Island and just make the developers and I thought, well, who sweeps into a community, tells you every with romance and stars in their eyes, they come in and they rob, cheat, and steal, take all your money, make everything worse, and leave? Pirates and developers. <laughs> so let's just make the developers pirates, which means we get to have sword fights on stage. Right, right, yeah, yeah. It's it's really really great. It definitely is. Um, you know, a pirate story, and um, and for those that don't know, you know, Treasure Island, those who do know Treasure Island, you know, they'll be able to see the connection between, you know, that original story and, and this play. Um, but those that don't know the story will also be intrigued around the whole idea of pirates and, and, and treasure, right, Treasure Island. There must be a treasure there. Uh, and so what is it? And... Um, mm-hmm. But what I really liked about the play was the idea that um, that people make mistakes and, and sometimes do things that aren't ethical, but you don't have to throw away the person. Um, yeah. That that you can you can change, you can realize that you were wrong and and do better if given the opportunity. Yeah, yeah that's one of the one of the things. Interestingly, like with this show, when we did one of the previews. Because there are actually a couple of characters who've made mistakes in the past, and one person was so upset. Oh yeah, that's true. They were like, mm-hmm. "Oh no, oh. you can't have that person make a mistake." And it was like, "That's real life, you know." Mm. And the, and how do you ju- <laughs> how do they judge themselves? Can they become part of a movement after that? Do they have to? Do we throw them away, like you said? Do we discard them, or do we accept what they can bring, and and mm. uh, make them and you know let them kind of be reborn in the movement. Yeah, I think seeing someone uh, recover from their mistakes is a lot more interesting than hero worship uh, as, uh, you know, either either in a play or real life, really. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of those yeah. things where if you have somebody that's a pure and perfect hero, audience members may admire that person, but they can't really relate <laughs> to them because yeah. we all have things mm-hmm. in our past that we've done, sometimes great and sometimes very small, but things that we re- regret. Things where we say, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't done that. I was mean in this moment. Or I made a bad choice. And so seeing someone who's done something bad in the past and that we can forgive them makes it easier for us to figure out, forgive ourselves. But if they're perfect, mm-hmm. we just feel bad, you know, ultimately. <laughs> we may admire them, but we're like, I'll never yeah. be like that. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So – um, gosh, since both of you, you know, you have uh, mind, truth, tenure, um, and I was just wondering sort of about this particular play and this production. Um, I'm, I'm sure that each time that you do a play, um, you know, there's an opportunity for, for both personal and artistic or growth. And I was wondering... Were there any um, any challenges to putting this work together, and and sort of what delights you most now that um, you know you're actually you know up and performing and getting all this audience you know uh, you know participation you know by being you know doing it you know in the parks and uh, mostly in the parks but other places and also if you could tell our audience sort of where you're going to be next like this week just in case um, you know they have not gone to the website and looked up, you know, the schedule, which, because you all are performing a lot of places. Uh, I don't know how many. And, um, yeah, yeah, um, you you go on, I think, was it through September? Is that, yeah, is that we'll go how on long through, the season lasts? Yeah. Yeah, until <laughs> the middle of September, and we'll play all over. One of the things about, you know, because we'll have shows in the East Bay and Northern California mm-hmm. and, and down on the peninsula. And one thing, uh, on opening day, uh, two young men came up to me and were introduced to me, mm-hmm. and they said they were from New Jersey, and they were like oh, they're nice. uh, activists, housing activists in like Trenton or something, and they said mm-hmm. that they're dealing with many of these same issues, and they were like, is there any way we can bring the Mime Troop to New Jersey to do this show? <laughs> they said, even though it's not about New Jersey, it's stupid important. And I said, well, that would be great, but we need to find some other places to tour also, like going to Flint. And he said, we have fl- friends in Flint, Michigan. We could try to raise enough money to bring you guys with this show through Flint, Michigan, and maybe through like Cleveland and different places that are dealing with many of the same issues. So that's one of the things about working on Mime Troop shows. People think of these as a very local show. It's like, oh, this is a San Francisco show. And then someone will come up to us in Berkeley and say, no, we're dealing with this issue at, at Mare Island or Alameda Naval Base or, or at Travis Naval Base or, or Travel Air Force Base, um, different bases around. And then people from other parts of the country say, we're dealing with these issues. You know, so even when a show, with a show like this that seems so local, it actually has mm-hmm. this national, uh, can have this national impact. But, yeah, we'll be playing, I think we're in Berkeley this weekend. Uh, we, we're uh, playing, yeah, on you know. on uh, this Wednesday, we'll be in Palo Alto at Coverly Community Center, and then this weekend mm-hmm. we're going to be in Berkeley at Francis Willard Park. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. we'll be yeah. all over. And doing a show like this, having that audience response where each – we've only done the show three times so far, but each time mm-hmm. people have come up to us and just said, thank you for doing this. 
this is very much people that from Treasure Island or from you know any of the areas that are around these naval or, or Air Force or Army bases saying, this is my experience. Thank you so much for telling the story. Um, and so – and that we're doing it using comedy again because it's it's – all of these stories the Mime Troop tells actually very tragic stories, um, mm-hmm. and, but we have to do them in a way. We have to use comedy so that people don't just get so disheartened and depressed. We want to activate people, not just make them cry. You know, um, so the comedy, yeah, the music, be a, a message of hope that yeah. we leave them with to some extent. Right, which can be tough when you mm-hmm. have something that's dealing with something as serious as this, but. That's that's what gets people to come out to the park and come out and see, and they can bring their whole family, and it's family-friendly shows, but we mm-hmm. but it's also about educating, entertaining, and activating. I'd like right. to build yeah. on something that Michael said real briefly, that uh, mm-hmm. it, a show like this, yes, it, it appears to be very tightly and locally focused, and yes, it has a, a national – uh, relevance. It also really has an international relevance. That this mm-hmm. this idea of uh, environmental justice, that uh, with with things like climate change, with the results of industrialization, military militarization, that uh, it, it is always throughout the world uh, the people who are the most vulnerable who always suffer the most. Um, and and that's true in the United States, and it's true in other countries and on other continents. Uh, and that that's that's something that that has to be addressed as we try to build a better society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to um, talk about um, uh, sort of enclosing any of the um, uh, any particular scene that? Um, and I don't know. Could you give us a little bit of it, uh, Michael? Because um, you're in the play. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I am play in the one play of these, too. These characters. Yeah, your your character is really amazing. Um, it's sort of like, um, you know, he's he's seen as you know kind of kind of crazy and off. But wow, we you know we don't know his history, and sort of it also sort of your character tells us that we shouldn't dismiss people because of their presentation, right? Um, yeah, I mean the character uh, is. Uh, mm-hmm. I tried when I was writing it to very much base the characters <laughs> on characters in the book, and so my character okay. Benny Gunn is Ben Gunn from the book. He's the a uh, marooned pirate who's been who's just kind uh, of gone nuts. But in my case, having been a pirate and having felt like you know uh, being involved with all of the <laughs> all of the you know. Uh, forcing people from, from uh, onto the worst land, and he was a developer. He worked with them, and he has kind of his guilt has just gnawed at him ever since. And so he's on the island, you know, trying to live. He lives in his in his cave under the bridge, under the bay bridge, with his bats, and and you know just. <laughs> mulling over all of his problems and when he's dealing with young Hawkins, the way that he has to try to tell her that 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 all the problems of the history, how there are spots on Treasure Island that will give you in an hour a worse dose of radium than, than, than a nuclear worker will get in a whole year, which is absolutely true. There are spots like that. And that for 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 uh, for gun 
but the way he feels about the, what he has done to those families and how he thinks about it every day and he dreams about it at night, how he helps people make money, make fortunes, pirates of the balloons off of the misery of the average person just trying to find a home for their family. So I get to play a pirate, which is always fun. <laughs> mm. <laughs> right, yeah. Nice, nice. Um, any 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 closing uh thoughts, uh, Daniel? Um I don't know if you sing. Um do you sing? <laughs> I do sing. Uh or I oh. I can sing. I I don't actually get very many opportunities to sing because mostly I'm accompanying the singing of others. But uh but I do sing a bit. Oh, cool. Give us a little a little riff on um uh on on the scene that maybe um you know uh Michael shared or some uh, other Michael's describing <laughs> yeah. Uh well so so um Michael created a uh a, a metaphor that the uh <clears throat> the the buildings of the city are the teeth in the mouth of a monster that has swallowed him whole. Um uh, and uh, and that was just such a vibrant image to me that 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 inspired the song uh, that uh, that his character that Gun Gun sings uh, of being stuck in the mouth of the monster uh, because he feels so guilty over what he's done uh, and so so that represents the the lowest point that uh, that one can reach from the mistakes that you've made in trying to trying to do right and uh and then our our hero Hawkins has to you know decide what what path is she going to go down is she going to be marooned like gun or is she going to go back to the city and try to try to do the right thing hmm. Oh you should sing some Daniel yes, I should I sing some of that, of that song. I mean that was nice uh, thank you yeah <laughs> if, if, Since if you I had, can you remember, hardly ever uh, get asked yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's see. The, the the first few lines of that song. Uh, Hear the wicked winds wail, see them roiling the bay, but they don't fill the sail. I can't get underway. So he feels so weighed down by his guilt that he can't escape, even though the bridge is right there. Right. Yeah. Marooned, I am. <laughs> Nice. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you both so much, um, you know, for joining us to talk about Samsco Mime Truth, Treasure Island, and the 60th anniversary of this wonderful Bay Area treasure, Samsco Mime Truth. I mean, you all have been around 60 years. I'm wishing you 60 more. Uh, wow. Thank you so much. And we do have an event really coming up this fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, in October, oh, okay. we'll be doing uh, kind of a 60th anniversary birthday bash for ourselves out at, uh, in the per- new Presidio Theater, which is on, on the Presidio base. has this great old mm-hmm. live performance space that had kind of fallen apart and multiple earthquakes and water damage. And the Presidio Trust has been uh, 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 renovating it for the last couple of decades, mm-hmm. really. And now it's this beautiful space, and they asked us. They were like, well, we want to figure out some way to inaugurate our space, and, and it would be great if the Mime Troop could do something here. And we were like, 
why don't we have our big event there? So well, there'll be performance by Mind Troopers, and we're bringing in other people. Paula West is going to perform, and uh, Josh nice. Kornbluth and other folks. So we'll be having a big thing. Mm. So um, hopefully you'll be hearing about that. It'll be uh, early October, first week of October. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I'll put that in my book to make sure that if I don't hear something uh, by the end of September or September, I'll, I'll make sure I inquire. Don't want to miss that. That should be really awesome. Oh, cool. So we'll have an opportunity to um, pop some bubbles and do some confetti and say, hey, 60 years. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Cool. Well, I'm definitely going to try to come see um, the play again because it was one of those kind of plays as all Mime Troop uh, performances and productions are. You know, you, you want to come get there early for the music, and and you leave humming, <laughs> you know some of those great lyrics, and uh, and and also get, you know, your activism battery recharged with other things you can get involved with, and become you know a part of, you know, the active solution to some of these ills that are plaguing our communities, particularly around access to um, affordable and that whole idea, you know, when you all talk about what is affordable, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what is afford what is affordable when somebody who makes ninety thousand dollars a year can apply for affordable housing? What chance do those of us making like ten or thir- fifteen or thirty thousand, you know, we're just squeezed off onto the edge? Right, right, yeah, yeah. Well, you take good care, and again, it's great speaking to both of you. Okay, thank you for thank having you us. so much. Oh, you're quite welcome. And uh, Daniel, let me know when you're going to be performing with your one of your bands again, because I like I like to come hear you all. I sure will. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> all right. Take good care. Bye bye. Bye. Ah, uh, good morning, um, Stephanie Linder, Executive Director, of San Francisco Botanical Garden Society, and Cash Killian. Ah, musician, yeah. artist, extraordinaire. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about flower piano. My goodness, that looks so fun. Yeah. Well, thank you. You're <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, should um, uh, should you should I let you tell us about flower piano first, Stephanie, and then I'll read your bios. Um, how does that sound? Sure. Sounds great, Wanda. Thanks so much for uh, having us. We uh, the pianos arrived yesterday here at San Francisco Ooh. Botanical Garden, and we're getting ready for our <laughs> fifth anniversary of Flower Piano. And this is a mm-hmm. um, participatory music festival experience in Golden Gate Park at the Botanical Garden, which is 55 acres with nearly 9,000 plants from across the world. And um, tucked in the garden are 12 pianos for 12 days, and there are scheduled performances, and then there's also open play time. It is uh, free to San Francisco residents during the days, and it is free with admission um, for for non-residents. And then um, the evening events, we have flower piano at night where we bring in some lighting to the garden and some food trucks and bars and adult beverages, things <laughs> like that. That's um, the July 18th, 19th, and 20th. That is a ticketed event. And then we also have a new event this year on it's flower piano at sunset on Friday, 
July 12th, um, starting at 6 o'clock, and that one is more, that evening event is uh, more appropriate for young children and families. Uh, so we invite everyone to come. Uh, last year we had over 60,000 people come during those 12 days. Um, wow. There's a huge range of musical genres, uh, and it's it's just a great, a great day out. Bring a picnic, bring the family. Um, there's also some health and wellness aspects. We have free free yoga at 9 a.m. on Saturday and Sunday, both weekends of it. So really packed schedule, which you can check out on our website, um, sfbg.org slash flower piano. And the whole schedule is there with all the performers. It's an amazing lineup. And you can also click to buy tickets for the evening events. Mm, wow, wow. Wow, that's amazing. That's really amazing. Um, could you repeat again the day that you mentioned would be good for families with children? Yeah, well, uh, you know, every day is, but if you want an evening event. Um, yeah, evening uh, one, the, that's one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Flower Piano at Sunset is this Friday, the 12th, and that is from 6 to 8.30 and uh, mm-hmm. tickets are available on the website. Um, and we'll be toasting our uh, partners, uh, Sunset Piano, who brought this incredible idea to us five years ago, and we'll be celebrating our our fifth sort of fifth anniversary party. So the more the merrier. Mm, right, right. And and Cash Killian is one of those artists that you mentioned um, that's going to be um, – uh, doing the concerts um, in the evenings, right? I'm going to be playing at 12:30 at the Zeller Box stage. Oh, on, uh, oh July okay. 14th. Okay, yeah. July 14th. Okay. Yeah, and the there's great, um, great performances midday uh, during mm-hmm. on the weekends. Lots of performances like Cash and others at that time. And then during the the week of um, the 15th through the 19th, we've also, through expanded community partnerships, we have uh, scheduled some noontime performances. So midday is also a great time to come if you want to catch a performance. But come anytime. Mm-hmm. There's always somebody playing something wonderful. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um Cash, is this the first time you perform, or are you a person that goes back uh, to the beginning of Flower Piano? I go back to the beginning of Flower Pianos, but Maro Fortissimo, who I've been knowing since the 80s, I got into tango mm-hmm. about in the 80s one time. Uh, I, I met Maro. I was at a film session, and he was there, and I met him, so I started playing. So I've been playing with him since about 1980. I've been to Argentina, studied tango, dance, and music and stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. But I started at the beginning. So, you know, uh-huh. yeah. And and so um what are you going to be doing this year um at Flower Piano? And what what makes you return year some, after year? I'm, huh? Yeah, it's different every year. This year I'm going to do something year. different. I'm bringing some exotic instruments from around the world. I'm going to do some lecture demonstrations mm-hmm. for half an hour. Then my trio is going to mm-hmm. play some original music of mine. Some stuff people haven't heard yet that I'm going to be be recording, and I'm going to use some exotic instruments from that too, like the cello, the uh, sarangi, and then the, the uh, one I'm bringing instruments. I might have the uh, bolong from uh, Gambia. Uh, it's another mm-hmm. instrument from India called the uh, chanda sarang, 
and another one called uh, the S Raj. They're string instruments. So I'm going to do some lecture demonstration of some of those instruments and then do some performances of some of my original music with them. I got a trio playing this year. So Ron McBee from New York City, who tours with me with Summer Orchestra. And I got uh, Charles Mosell, who's a multi instrumentalist who plays Bonsuri, alto sax, keyboards, does uh, voice stuff. And, uh, so it's going to be a really exciting time. Hmm. Wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. That you're a, um, a San Francisco based cellist, bassist, sarongist, vocalist, and composer uh, who you write began your professional music career at age 10. And um, I think later on in your bio, I read that. You are, yeah, you were born in Alton, Illinois, Miles Davis's hometown, and you were raised listening to jazz. Your brother was a jazz trumpeter uh, in the very fertile music scene in and around East St. Louis, which has a really, wow, phenomenal history, um, uh, some of it tragic. Uh, and you were drawn first to clarinet, then voice, flute, electric guitar, and electric bass. Yeah. And you started, yeah, yeah, and... Um, yeah, you just seemed like you were doing music all your life. Um, you know, high school, you were working in doo, doo-wop, funk, soul, rock, and church groups. In college, you studied classical contrabass, violin, and cello. You attended L.A.'s City College, and you hold a B.A. in performance and musical composition from Antioch University. Uh, yeah. Piano giant Horace Tapscott became, became your mentor. Like, wow. And uh, yeah, you played met. bass in Tapscott. Go ahead. Uh-huh. No, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, finish. No, no. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I met, I met, yeah, actually, I, when the second day I was in college, I had somebody knocked on my door. I was practicing the bass. There was this guy named Henry Alexander, who's one of my best friends from L.A., and that, after that I got hooked up with all the people in the ARC, Hard Stop Scott's organization. Mm. You know, so I started playing yeah. with all the great guys from there, Michael Sessions. Mm-hmm. I met so many musicians I played with in L.A. It was incredible. Hard, you know. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. Yeah, you played bass in, um, you know, Horace Tafka's Arc Orchestra. Drummer Billy Higgins was part of that scene, too. And this rekindled, you write, your interest in straight-ahead jazz. And on the straight-ahead jazz front, you played with great players like Donald Byrd, George Cables, who has a new CD out I was listening <laughs> to uh, NPR yep. um, last week, um, uh, Billy Higgins, Bobby Hutchison, James Newton, Billy Bang, like a lot of the greats that some of them are ancestors now. Um, and then, you know, everyone probably in the Bay Area knows about your interest and um, in avant-garde jazz and your relationship with Sun Ra uh, in 1978 yeah. um, and yeah. um, and then Farrell Saunders. Um, yeah, um, so I don't know um, if you want to talk a bit about about your um your 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 musical life and uh yeah and and again you know what you were talking about earlier about what you planned for um for the um uh the flower piano flower. Um, sessions <laughs> this particular season yeah. which I'm so happy to know yeah. about because I hadn't known about flower piano Stephanie until I got this email like oh this looks like a fun <laughs> well you gotta come. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yes, I plan to. <laughs> it just looks so beautiful. All those beautiful evening photographs and just seeing like these real pianos sitting out in the garden, like twelve pianos. Like wow, these are my daughter. I showed my daughter, and I'm like, wow, we should take the baby. Um, uh, my grandson, he's three, and I was like, like wow, this is really cool. 
absolutely. Yeah, There's a, a lot of great programming for children specifically, too. So definitely check that out on, on the schedule. Um, I mean, I think kids would love mm-hmm. love it all, but there's some specific programs for them that I think will be perfect for a three-year-old. So. Oh, yeah, why don't you tell us before before um, Cash tells, um, you know, sort of answers my question and gives us more information about his musical life. Yeah, well, for for example, Thursday, opening day, we have a sing-along with Community Music Center, and um, that is super fun. It's from 4 to 6. It's sort of the first scheduled event that kind of kicks off the whole, the whole thing. Um, and then um, we have Rabbit Hole Theater does a scavenger hunt, and um, it's just, it's a really uh, kind of whimsical scavenger hunt through the garden, ending in song and movement. Um, and um, it starts from our main gate, and you get a, cl- a clue card, and then families can find hidden char- characters in nearby gardens. It's super fun. Kids love it. That's on Saturday 13th at 10 a.m., um, we also have some programming in our library. Uh, the garden has the most comprehensive horticultural library in Northern California. And one of the cool things about this library is a special children's section, as well as a parent and teacher reference um, uh, section, too. And But we do story time and family walks during, um, uh, we do this year-round, but it sort of takes on a special flavor for flower piano. And um, that's, you know, 10.30 to 11.30 on Sunday, July 14th. Um, so, And there's just tons more on the website. And what I recommend for people who want to come um, to download our app because the schedule is jam-packed because we have, you know, multiple pianos, multiple performers, multiple programs. And when you download the app, it's all right there in the palm of your hand, and you can filter it for, I want to see family-friendly things, or I want to see this kind of music, or, you know, you can you can make sense of the schedule uh, using the app. But it's all there on our website, too. Oh, cool. Super. And give the website again? It is SF, as in San Francisco, SF. BG, as in Botanical Garden, so sfbg.org forward slash flower piano, um, and tons of information there. Okay, super, thank you. Okay, Cash. Yeah, I was going to say, though, uh, when I grew up, though, I had two great cousins who were famous drummers in St. Louis. One was uh, Philip Wilson. He grew up with Lester Bowie. Um mm. And the other one was Omar Clay. I didn't get to play to play with the filler, but he, he knew I was a musician. He heard me, got to see me on some videos and playing cello. And, and but it was a good thing because I, I learned about all these other musicians and musicians. And because when I got into jazz, he was heavy into jazz. He was playing with everybody: Lester, Jews, Hemphill, Oliver Lay. You know, uh, all the great Shirley Lafleur, Floyd Lafleur, David Hines, all the people in the St. Louis scene, in the blues scene, and. Um, I got got started focusing more on world music when I went to LA. I mean, I was playing jazz, and then I got into Oster Tune from the Egyptian singer, and uh, so I've been doing more world music of all kinds of eclectic things around the world with different groups and people, and that's what I'm trying to focus on more. Trying to connect some, uh, trying to pay 
authentic in, instruments into things and put them in situations they're not usually in, you know what I mean? And uh, mm. so I've been trying to work on that. And I've been, a lot of things successful. i got a new project coming from uh, my buddies coming in from Australia to do something with Tony Allen, a fella, Kute Band, and uh, mm. Marshall Allen. We're working on a recording with them and another famous musician. I was just here from Ethiopia. I forget his name. He was playing, so I'm doing some stuff, recording some stuff with him too. So uh, it's been pretty good. Wow. Wow, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow, yeah. You're, um, um, uh, in your, your bio, again, it says that you strive to put the string instruments in unusual situations and play any style of music and make it sound authentic. Um, your focus is to create something unique, and from that, uh, your music and CDs have wild, wide appeal, and there's something for everyone to enjoy. Um, and you also perform, you know, as we already mentioned, with a variety of musical ensembles and chamber orchestras, ranging from Sun Ra Orchestra to Cuban bands, such bands such as Roberto Borrell, E Orchestra, right. Orchestra. Hmm? La Moderna, uh, Tradición, the classical music, and Indian classical music. And you have over 100 recordings to your credit. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I record a lot in Europe. I also got to study with the great inspired Ali Akbar Khan, North Indian classical music. And so mm-hmm. I think I was telling people all the years I studied jazz, but when I got with him, he gave me a gold pot of treasures worth over, I don't know how much, trillions of dollars of music that I could stuff I've been working on for the rest of my life and still working on, you know. And in India, they say it takes, a, it takes a lifetime to learn music, you know. And it's that's what it's about. It's not about, you know, you um, think you get a book and you read it and you become a great musician. It's possible, but, you know, you still have so many things in life. Just, you know, life's an improvisation every day, so is music. You know, you wake up, think you're going to do something one day. Who knows what's going to happen that day, you know, so... You just keep trying to find the right vibration. You know, Sun Ra was the same way. I mean, it was all about vibration. He he was an incredible human being, an incredible artist. You know, and uh, he had a lot of he had he wrote he wrote a lot of music and put a lot of music out. You know, and he he could feel vibration from different people. You know, he was a incredible person. You know, and uh, I'm just fortunate and blessed to be able to play with some of these great musicians that I have worked with over the years. Like Cecil Taylor, I worked with him several times, and before he passed away, and just you know, just, just you know, just being around those guys and even talking with them and talking about music life, it it, it it helps you enhances your your way you look at things too. You know what I mean? Mhm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking. Um, you know, um, you know, you use a string instrument, and this is, um, uh, you know, this uh, particular um, um, program. You know, is looking at flower piano, and and but pianos also are string string instruments. You know, with with little hammers, right? And and I was right. thinking, you know, you're talking about vibration and and strings. You can see the vibration. I mean, uh, on the strings, and someone once uh, sort of. Um, said that the strings and instruments could almost uh, be symbolic of, like, the nervous system, um, you know, in the body, mm-hmm. how, you know, how our, our nerves are strings, and they vibrate um, as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I was just wondering if, if you could talk a little, about, little bit about sort of uh, your attraction to, you know, the string instruments because, 
um, particularly, you know, uh, the cellist, you know, cello, because um, people, you know, they know the bass, but they don't necessarily see a lot of people playing the cello, um, as well as the, you know, like, you know, you have these um, traditional instruments from other places, you know, like the sarongs that you right. that you introduce your audience to, which is, and, and then, you know, and then you're also a vocalist and and you prepared in, um you're a singer, <laughs> and you've appeared in some yeah. films as well. And and then and then um, you know after you finish commenting, commenting, I wanted to bring Stephanie back in to talk about how, you know, how the the musicians are curated for this particular um, mm-hmm. uh, celebration of 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 the garden and music in the garden. And you think sort of about like you know those those stories, those myths around you know paradise. Mm-hmm. You know, there's music in the garden. <laughs> so anyway. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Go ahead, Cass. Uh, so, um, I mean, I got into cello because when I got into college, I was a string major. I mean, I fell in love with the bass. When I went to L.A., I didn't want no girlfriends. The bass was my girlfriend. You know, I didn't want to be have no distraction. <laughs> I wanted to focus on the bass. And, and then I started playing cello. The string major, I had to play all the strings, the, the bass, the cello, the violin, the viola, piano, voice, and all that stuff, you know. And so I started seeing some op- different options with the cello than the bass because, you know, I knew the function as a bass player. I mean, I had to play electric bass in sixth grade, but then when I got into college, they didn't accept electric bass. So I was playing the upright bass. I started playing upright bass. And then when I got the cello, I started hearing all these different options of the cello. I could use it as a guitar. I could use it like a like a choral instrument, I could use it as a lead instrument. I could do a lot of things. I could use it as a bass instrument. I started selling these options with it, so I started filming some other things that I didn't feel from the bass, you know what I mean? So I started, you know, and when I came to the Bay Area, I think about uh, when I moved here, I came here many years ago in the 70s, and I did an all that camp here with, uh, with Ken Schubert and Jessica Felix were together. I lived on, I stayed up in Guerrero for about a week and then went back to LA just to hang out with them. And then, uh, but I started seeing all these options with the cello as a different kind of instrument, not just because it was a classical instrument. It's not this study classical cello. Had an opportunity to hang out with some great classical cello players, Yano Starker, and my teacher studied with Papa, one of them studied with Pablo Casals. So I was heavy into classical music. I always did like classical music or some of the things, nuances. But I thought the cello had a had a it, it could be used in a lot of different situations. You know, like the bass is you know the bass usually has a function. It, it holds down everything. It's the foundation of the band. The cello had an option to spring off of all these different things that you know because I played guitar for many years and I played different instruments. But the cello gave me some other options that I didn't see from the bass. You know, and then when I got into the shurangi, that took me to another where so I was using these different techniques on the cello got into the Indian music and started using these techniques that I learned on the Indian music into the cello. So I basically started playing Hindu cello studying that first, and then I heard the Sarangi, and that's how I, I just heard a CD and I said, wow, what is that? I didn't know what it was at first, and I just loved the sound, so I fell in love with the sound, you know, just like the bass. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I started all these options. To this day, I still do a lot of different things with the cello in different situations, like I was just in London turn with Sunrise, and I did the end of the concert with some Indian people in London with the cello, so it turned out really pretty spectacular. And uh, But I keep keep trying, like you said, I keep trying to trying to put these instruments in a different 
different uh, situation that you usually don't see them in, you know, because when you think of cello, you basically think of classical cello. You don't think of jazz cello or anything. I went out to Cuba several times to play there. I did some uh, jazz at the Havana Jazz Festival several times. I performed there, and I did a lot of lecture demonstration about the cello and the surangi. And first of all, they didn't think jazz. There was a jazz cello until I showed them you, mm-hmm. you can't play jazz on the cello. So it kind of opened people's eyes. And some young kids that I was teaching in Cuba started seeing 